Welcome to this episode of the Nonsensical Knowledge Podcast. I'm here with uh, Dennis Stone of America Stonehenge. Um, Dennis, how are you? I'm doing good tonight, uh, Edwin. Thank you for having me on. Oh, thank you so much for being on, man. And thank you so much for the gracious invite you gave us to uh, come out and check out all of the uh, historical historical work that actually took place out there this past weekend. No, I'm so happy to have you come out and uh, be with us. And uh, uh, I guess about a month ago you were out, too, so it was very nice to see you again. Yeah, it was awesome, man. I actually am very intrigued by the place. Um, how, how did you uh, first get involved with America Stonehenge? Yeah, when it goes back, uh, it's actually in a, kind of a family affair. It goes back um, about 65 years to 1955, and it was my dad, uh, Robert Stone, and uh, he heard about this on a radio show, much like we're doing right now. And it was a show out of Boston, one of the largest uh, radio stations in New England. It, I guess it still is. It was on a Friday night, and they were just having a uh, you know a talk session about uh, you know some local things. And what came up that particular evening was. Um, uh, all about what we call America Stonehenge today, these strange stone ruins located in southern New Hampshire in a town of North Salem. And uh, my dad only lived about seven miles away in the town of Gary, New Hampshire. And he lived there most of his life, um, and he had never heard about this place. So that it was quite a surprise to hear about a uh, collection of, uh, oh, excuse me, stone ruins in the uh, you know neighboring town, you know. Absolutely. Uh, Kind of a big site, you know, kind of a big site, covers about 110 acres. And um, that week uh, after he heard that radio show, which really intrigued him, uh, and the name of the show is uh, Yankee Yarns, by the way. Alton Hall Blackington was a talk show host. And I believe that summer they actually had another show about this, which he caught. So it was on twice that year. Um, and uh, about a couple of days later, he's at a barber shop up in Derry, New Hampshire, waiting to have his hair cut. You know, as he waited, he saw a couple of uh, papers on the table, and he picked up one of them. It was a magazine called New Hampshire Profile. And as he's flipping through it, um, he notices, uh, you know, the pictures of this, uh, you know, these stone, stone ruins, and sees the uh, the headline and everything about, you know, North Salem, New Hampshire, and everything. It was quite a surprise for him because there it was, another whole feature the same week about the same stone site. Wow, and, that's uh, amazing. Yeah, as he's reading it, he asked the barber if he could keep it. And the barber goes, well, how old is that magazine? And my dad goes, well, it's uh, 1952, so we're sitting in the barber shop three years, you know. So just coincidentally, nobody had thrown it away. Wow. He took it home with him, and uh, that Saturday night, uh, they went to my aunt and uncle's house in the same town of Gary, and they were playing cards with about 10 people. So, you know, they sat around having a beer, drinking cards, and my dad pulled out the magazine at some point and passed it around to but it's about the 10 people that were there, the other nine people, and they all looked at it. Nobody really knew what it was until uh, my aunt and uncle on my mom's side, it was her sister, actually, and her husband, that looked at it and said, gosh, you know, it looks familiar. Um, turns out they had actually uh, driven their bicycles about eight miles down the road back in the 1930s, 20 years prior to this, when they were dating, and they had gone up there and picnic on this site. Wow, uh, kind of, yeah, so it's kind of a family thing connected with it. And uh, so my dad's next question is, hey, can we, uh, can you find the place, you know, to my aunt and uncle? And they're like, well, it's been 20 years. I don't know. And it wasn't open to the public at the time. You know, it was actually being researched by a group called the Early Sites, uh, Early Sites Research, uh, or what was it called? The Early Sites Foundation, excuse me, which was formed in 1954, the year before, and it ran until 1964. So uh, that was the only thing really going on in the site. It was not open to the public. There was no visitor center, no real trails. 
But they drove around that Sunday morning around North Salem, and they finally found what looked like the road that my aunt and uncle remembered. And uh, the four of them hopped out of the car, and they walked about maybe a third of a mile up the hill. <clears throat> and uh, they got to the site, and they said, oh, this is it. So my dad climbed into the chain link fence, which is still there today, and the rest of them stayed outside the chain link fence. The uh, chain link fence surrounds about one acre of the main, what we call the main site. And there's barbed wire on top. It was put up in 1937 to protect the site. That's the, the original site. fence. Sorry to interrupt. You. Yeah, wow. yeah. It's incredible shape, actually. And uh, it was Mr. Goodwin from Hartford, Connecticut, the first researcher that put it up in 1937. So almost 20 years later, you know, they're climbing underneath there. Oh, my dad was. And then he spent quite a bit of time inside. And uh, there's a lot of brush and a lot of debris in the site at that time. Um, so they lost track of where my dad was inside that one acre area. So they just sat, the three of them stayed outside. My dad wandered around the site. When he finally came back out, snuck under the fence again. So he's basically trespassing, you know, and there were signs of trespass, you know. (laughs) And most of the time, trespassing isn't good, but, um, in this case, I guess it worked out. Right. And my dad came out pretty excited about the place, you know, and, my, uh, my, everybody said, what do you think about the place? And he said he was just totally blown away by the stone structures, the ruins, and, you know, it was so different from anything he had ever seen before or heard about. Uh, and uh, it kind of lived up to what the uh, the radio show and the magazine, you know, talked about. And he mentioned to my mom something about he'd like to uh, open it up to the public, perhaps as a museum someday and do research on it. And my mom wasn't, you know, that. <laughs> Dad excited about that, and she said something about him having rocks in his head, you know. So, <laughs> but so after that, it took three years for my dad to work with the uh, owner, who was Malcolm Pearson. And Malcolm just died about nine years ago at 99 years old, and he was the owner at the time. And wow. um, so my dad worked out a deal with Malcolm over, you know, 1958. My dad actually opened the public, I believe, it was the summer solstice of 1958. And it was unofficial. On July 9th, officially it opened with a governor from New Hampshire coming down to, to be there. The last time a governor has actually visited our place, I think. <laughs> you know? Wow. So, uh, yeah, the last time. <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah. So we've been open 62 years. Um, and uh, it's, it's still in the family. In 1970, it was made a state historic site. So 50 years ago this year was the anniversary of that. So it is a state historic site, but it's privately owned and operated. And, it's about 110 acres of walls, uh, constructions, um, and as you saw as you walked around, a lot of stone chambers and a lot of different features to the site. Oh, it was amazing. Which, there's, there was so much to see there, Dennis. There's, there's so much to take in, to be honest. It's, and that's why I think multiple trips out there are very good because it was really cool seeing it the second time around. And we're still finding things here, too, on that 110 acres, so uh, a lot of it's kind of hidden behind the forest, you know, the vegetation bushes and the debris so we're still finding things up there and uh you know and um so it's been kind of for me i was about a year old at the time so i'm sort of dating myself so it's been pretty much my whole life (laughs) (laughs) so and our last name is stone so i guess that's kind of appropriate but my uh my dad passed away 10 years ago and since he passed away we found quite a few interesting things particularly in the last four years since I retired from the airlines, um, I was with the airlines for 35 years working full-time as a pilot, um, and then I would work on my days off at the museum, occasionally get away once in a while and take advantage of the airlines, you know, but um, travel and see other stone sites around the world, you know. Oh, for sure. <laughs> never, get, never getting away from them, really. But, um, I mean, when you, when you have a passion for them, Dennis, like you do, and we could, it was, it was 
purely evident. Everybody that we had spoken to had spoke about your passion about this place and all their stone structures, and it was it was inspiring for sure. Oh, thank you so much for the kind words. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Uh, you know, the family really appreciates that too, and and all the people that have worked here over the years. You know, um, that's very nice for everybody too. You know, because I've taken my passion from them. You know, it's kind of a passion thing, and I'll pay it forward sort of thing. Um, I got the passion from my dad, and he got passionate from Melton. Melton got it from Goodwin, and it just goes back. You know, for many many years. And I have one son, uh, one child, and we just had we just had a uh, grandchild on Friday, the day that you were there. Oh wow! Know. Congratulations! <laughs> wow. Well, in the midst of that big day we had, you know, and you were there for the activity. Uh, Absolutely. It was a pretty exciting day. Well, yeah. my daughter in law was due in five weeks, uh, and that morning she had to be rushed to the hospital. You know, um, and we, during the whole day, I was kind of worried as to the condition of the baby and her. Um, pretty worried about it, you know, as oh, anybody would be. For sure. And it's, we're still trying to make sure everything went smoothly up there, and we were also down by one staff member. That was my daughter-in-law, so we were on a short, short staff too. On top of that, and uh, and everybody was really terrific. You guys are terrific. Everybody really helped out so nicely. And uh, and then at the end of the day, at four thirty-three, uh, the grandchild was born. You know, so uh, oh, and I just saw her, I saw her about twenty minutes ago for the first time. She's oh, been in the congratulations. hospital. Congratulations. Yeah, so kind of a. Kind of an exciting weekend for us. Yeah, for sure, what, a, you know? what a way to end that day. Yeah, that was, that <laughs> yeah, was, it was good. It was I'll really, never forget. Yeah, it was really cool. That was perfect timing. Like, I mean, <laughs> you know, and unfortunately with all the COVID rules, it's tough to be at the hospital these days. But, I mean, yeah. you know, hey, you know, that was, I, that's a great day to me. Yeah, definitely, yeah. We couldn't see you in a hospital or anything. But, um, in fact, uh, quite a few of the family members haven't seen the baby yet, you know, just because of the COVID and, uh, it was unexpected too. She was expected, I believe, uh, well, probably the third week of October. And, uh, the baby shower was supposed to be Sunday, yesterday. So everything got thrown out the window, yeah, basically. Yeah. Early, for sure. <laughs> so, so, um, so what are, yeah. what are some of the <laughs> earliest, uh, what's some of the, like, the oldest carbon dating that you you found on the site? Like, I know you were saying that you guys did carbon dating also. What was, uh, some of the <laughs> earliest stuff you found? Right, uh, the carbon dating actually started in 1966, and um, 1967, they actually got a piece of root uh, that was growing through a chamber, and the chamber has a very large slab falling into it, and it, you probably saw it there, it's called the Chamber in Ruins, it has about oh, yeah. 7,000, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty visual, you know, and then it also has a root, um, a lintel stone that weighs about 1,000 pounds, it's actually on the ground inside the chamber. Uh, with a roof slab falling on top of it. So at some point in time, uh, possibly, you know, it could have been hundreds of years ago, we don't know, the roof slab actually caved in, and it may have been due to an earthquake. We've had many, many earthquakes. The worst was uh, that recorded was 1727, and it's in my dad's book how violent that earthquake was off of Cape Ann, probably about 20 miles to the east of our you know, where the museum is in the hill. Oh, wow. It caused yeah, damage all over New England and everything. Rivers ran backwards, sand came out of the ground, fires were started because people had, you know, lanterns and stuff. But the people, a lot of people went to church after that, too, I guess, because it scared the heck out of everybody. Oh, but, I can um, imagine. <laughs> but uh, there were many aftershocks. And there was probably, we have a printout in our museum, in my file over at the museum. We have like a, uh, a whole library upstairs and files and everything, and I've been going through all of them for the last couple of years since we retired, and we're going to digitize them. And oh, I have a computer. display for sure. Yeah, and I'm really, yeah, I think we might. We'll, uh, 
We have actually a printout from the Harvard, uh, Harvard University from the geological department. It was 1995, and it went back 300 years of earthquakes in the uh, in the area of magnitude and epicenter. And, um, and I have some more up-to-date, because we still have earthquakes here, obviously. But it does show you some of the violent earthquakes. So probably does damage to the site. You know, besides trees falling on top of chambers and uprooting, you know, and and people too, you know, people doing things there. I know um, that's that's tough too. You had seen some of the vandalism there, and uh, yeah, it's so, so disappointing. People, it is, and yeah, and that's happening in a lot of places too. And we're you know very aware of that. We just came back from Chaco Canyon a year ago, and they're you know they're they're trying to teach people about you know the value of these ancient sites and to care and respect them, and that's what you know, we're trying to do too. But but there are just natural causes sometimes that cause damage to these, you know, just age and all of that. But that chamber there had actually ended up on the north wall. We had three carbon dentings, but the first one was in 67. And when Mr. Goodwin was there, he was um, from Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, he was uh, involved in insurance, and his passion was the Vikings, Christopher Columbus, Native Americans. And he lived all over the country. His family was involved in insurance, and he lived in the West Coast in Seattle, in San Francisco. He was up in Alaska, actually doing some uh, gold hunting. But he was the first cousin of J.P. Morgan. And, oh, wow. Uh, so he's a pretty prominent family. He lived in Kansas at the beginning of his career. He was young. Then he moved westward to Seattle, then San Francisco. And he married his wife out in uh, Seattle. Mary Hood was his wife. And then eventually moved back to uh, Ohio for 15, I should say they moved to Ohio after that for 15 years. And what he would do on weekends is go out and map some of the 10,000 ancient mounds for the highway department. And it was about 120 years ago he was doing that. But when he got back to Hartford, uh, he had already heard about some of these, you know, strange stone uh, ruins and sites in the, in the northeast where he was from. You know, he's starting to learn about these things, you know. And he became aware of our site eventually. And then he bought 20 acres in 1936. Seven, and he put up that chain link fence and had a crew to start working on the site, doing uh, cleaning, a lot of cleanup, a lot of debris and everything, and thickly trees and brush and stuff like that, and then excavations. And oh, But he sure. noted a pine stump, a white pine stump, uh, and that was pretty, pretty big, good-sized tree. It was pretty rotted, so they couldn't do tree ring dating or dendrochronology. But they could estimate its age by its state of decay and its diameter, and they estimated some somewhere around 300 years old, approximately. And this was in 1937, so to put it back into the 1600s. In 1967, the stump was gone by then, but we had photographs because Malcolm, the gentleman that I mentioned, uh, was you know that uh, my dad bought the property from, actually was the one that introduced Mr. Goodwin to the site. And Malcolm was from Massachusetts. Uh, Malcolm was a professional photographer, so he photographed from day one when they first visited in 1936, and when Goodwin began his, you know, bought the 20 acres of property in 1937, and he photographed everything, you know, which is great. It's a great photographic record of what went on before Goodwin and during Goodwin's, you know, research and excavations and everything. Oh, wow. And there's a couple pictures of the stump there, you know, pretty, it's pretty rotted, you know. Oh, absolutely. But so they dug down in 1967, the New England Antiquities Research Association. Uh, and one of the members was the president of the Connecticut Archaeological Society, Frank Glenn, who'd been on the site since the 1950s. And he was a very well-respected archaeologist. And he actually excavated the area looking for pieces of the root from that pine tree. And what they were looking for is to see if the pine tree roots had penetrated the chambered ruins in the north wall. And as they dug down, they actually found some of the roots, which was pretty, you know, it was really exciting. They found them inside the wall because you don't build a, a, a structure around the tree. 
tree grows through the structure, you know, the roots and everything. So they photographed that, they diagrammed it, they recorded all of that, and have all that, all those archives and photographs, you know, in our museum, uh, in our um, in our file cabinets, and some of it's on display. And uh, they dated that by radiocarbon dating, the piece of uh, root, and it dated to 1690 AD. So it showed that the site was there at a pretty early time period. It didn't say it was built in, but it was already sitting there with a tree growing through it. Right. Uh, on 1690, plus or minus, I think it was 50 years. And that put it back before the Patty family. And the Patty family were five generations of shoemakers, originally from England. And some people gave them credit for building the entire complex of 110 acres of walls and structures and everything. Uh, and they said all his six husky sons helped him build it. He was eccentric. He was a bank robber, bootlegger, and mill robber. But actually, Patty was a fifth he was a fifth-generation shoemaker. There was a Peter from England, and then a Richard, Seth, Beth, and then Jonathan. And uh, Jonathan, at one point, was a tax collector for the town of Salem uh, around 1800 for three years. And later on, um, he took them to town paupers, or poor people. He actually put a bid in with the town of Salem, and he, for about eight years, he took them to town poor people. So people knew where Patty's family lived. They knew the Patties. He wasn't hiding from the law as some of the legends, you know, actually it's more mythology, had it. And he didn't have uh, six husky sons. He actually had a son named Seth, and he had a son named Jonathan. And Jonathan is named after him. Died in Boston at about 17 years old. Oh, wow. The other son. So he had one son that lived, you know, into adulthood. He had um, four daughters, and we think there's possibly two other daughters that don't have names, which might mean they died, you know, as babies. So he had five daughters uh, that lived. And so maybe the six, the five husky daughters built the whole site. You know, I mean, <laughs> right, yeah, right. you know, either sons or daughters. There's pretty heavy stonework up there to do that. Well, that so was. Some, uh, sorry, oh, sorry to interrupt you, Dennis. But uh, oh, no, while while we were up there, it was we 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 thought about it up and down, man. There's so many big stones there that it, it and and stones that are on top of walls. Not even so much that they're like at the bottom of a base of a wall. They put the big stones on top. <laughs> you know, so yeah. it's it, yeah. would, it would take a lot of effort to build that, like build those structures, like a and you, lot of it. And you can appreciate that by when you saw that the amount of work of uh, in the height that they moved this. Yeah, they could have just easily, not so easily, but they could have moved the stones and left the heavy ones on the bottom, put the smaller ones on top of the heavy ones. You know, but in some cases they put the big stones up higher, like you mentioned. So that's a it's a lot of work, and for some reason we noticed that at not only our site, but there are other sites in the Northeast, maybe 800. And a site can be one chamber in a town, or it can be a uh, could be a town like North Stonington, Connecticut, with 8,000 features scattered over the 35,000 acres. And we do see that same kind of thing there, where they put big stones sometimes on top of small stones, so they had to they had to raise them up quite a way, you know. And that's extra effort and more danger too, you know, when you're building something. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of heavy stonework there. And um, so that dating actually put it back before the Patty family, you know, and that was in 1967. So the date was 1690 A.D., plus or minus so many years. Two years later, in 1969, the you know, we went to the moon, uh, landed on it. Uh, they actually uh, got charcoal, they went down, and they went through several inches of sterile soil, which was kind of a disappointment initially, you know. And right. I think it was a five-by-five-foot area right next to the north wall right below where the piece of root was found. So they continued that area digging. And eventually what they found was uh, the soil colors changed, which they will do. We had the Munsell chart. You can match different stratigraphy uh, 
of soil, uh, you'll see it comes in layers according to how long it's been sitting in the ground, and you can actually match it up uh, <clears throat> to other areas, kind of get an idea how old something is, you know, by the uh, by the level it's found at. Thomas Jefferson, some people consider the father of uh, archaeology. He worked on some of the Native American mounds, you know, and uh, he mentioned that the large stratigraphy is the more you find something, as long as the soil has never been disturbed, right. the older it is. And so the more you go, the older it is. What we found was, when they got through that sterile soil, they found a hammerstone, rubbing stone, stone scrapers, and little stone spallings where somebody had been striking a big stone north of the flakes off, and they were shaping what we call dressing the stone. Oh, wow. And it was not the Stone Age technology, not metal tools, but stone tools against stone, you know, hammerstones. And we found that, and then we also found charcoal scatter. And the charcoal was sent to Geochrome Laboratories in Cambridge, Mass., just like a piece of pine root was. And the results came back um, that this charcoal was about 2995 uh, years for present, so about 3,000 years old, plus and minus. So it's like, wow. Yeah, so, and, uh, so the more evidence you find, it's going further and further back. Yeah, exactly. And that was like adjacent to the uh, north wall again, and there was no disturbance in the strata. You know, the stratified soil, there's no, nothing that turns it over like a shovel or, you know, chipmunks or people digging or whatever. It was all kind of undisturbed, which is good. That's what you want to find in archaeology. Right. And then two, and two years later, 1971, in that same area, they went down and they found some more stone tools. They also found more charcoal that dated to 4,000 years old, plus or minus, I think, 250 years. Below that, they found the bedrock had been removed. So the first thing that took place is the builders, whoever they were originally, removed the bedrock, used that material for building the structures, and they built a wall we call the North Chamber North Wall, which we've been talking about with a root through. And uh, so the first thing that happens, you remove the bedrock, then the soil starts deposited in there from windblown soil and particle, you know, uh, windblown particles, and it builds up very slowly in there, and it's about an inch for every 100 to 125 years. Some areas will collect soil quicker, too. It's like a catch-all where stuff will wash in there and build up quicker. Absolutely. But, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So but, but so in that north wall, we have three datings. You know, the, the root, 1690, the 3,000-year-old charcoal, 4,000-year-old charcoal, and then the bedrock. You know, So the bedrock had to be removed first, and then all this stuff came in later. And that chamber uh, has two windows. We found out recently it's actually trapezoid floor plan, not rectangular. There's not 90-degree walls in there. And the uh, corners, the three corners of the chamber, one corner is just part of the doorway, but three, co- three corners have corbelling. And corbelling is um, kind of a architectural design, almost looks like a arch, you know, like a, but yeah. it doesn't have a keystone. Yep. You see it in uh, some ancient Irish sites. You'll see it in other places in the world. I believe in Mexico I've seen it down in, in the Yucatan, you know. Yeah, They're absolutely. We were... We were actually speaking about that while we were there. Uh, 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 Dan, Dan is an engineer. One of the one of my brothers that I brought, and um, he was saying the same thing. He had pulled it up online. Like, oh man, these these look a lot like the ones in Ireland. That's pretty cool. That you saw that. That's that's pretty good. Yeah, pretty good observation. And that and that because that takes a while for many people to see that. But that's cool that he picked it right up on that too. He's a very analytical engineer. So so, so, that's 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 what you need. He, he made it. a great asset. Yeah, a great, a great resource. Yeah, that's good. So, it takes different fields, different disciplines to, to work on the site, for sure. And that, he would be handy on that, for sure. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> now, with all that, those dating techniques, tell me about surface luminescence dating and optically stimulated luminescence. What exactly are those? 
because I know we were, that's they were conducting those also Friday, right? That's right. Yeah, they're doing the uh, optically stimulated luminescence, and that's brand new to our set. We've never used that before. We use you know twelve carbon datings that I've mentioned, and um, we also dated the set using astronomy back in the nineteen seventies. The Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics did the calibration on the survey work. And said oh, that if your alignments, if your alignments uh, were used for that purpose, you know, to align, they would work about 1800 BC plus or minus a couple hundred years, just like the, the oldest carbon dating. So that was really the second way we dated this site. And that was 1978 results. In 1971, we got the 4,000 year old charcoal. So all these years later, we're starting to date it using optically stimulated luminescence. I believe that's been around for a while, but they've really perfected that. And what they do is they actually date the dirt. Um, what they're doing, looking at is how long ago did the dirt see the light of day? And it's to do with radiation. So uh, basically what they do is they do coring, and they core down into the ground next to a wall with this dirt. And hopefully, again, it can't be disturbed. You know, it can't be turned over. It has to be Don't fresh. Even... Has to, has yeah, to fresh. You can't see. Yeah. So if a chipmunk dug a hole and light could go down the hole, it will actually affect the dating, you know. So you have to be very, very careful about that. Uh, and if somebody went in there and excavated and then they threw the dirt back into the hole, well, they just destroyed the, uh, the optically stimulated luminescent dating, you know, you'll oh, come up man. with a false reading. You just, and, the, and I think it's very expensive. I understand it can cost thousands of dollars a core or about a thousand per core, I think, you know, mm-hmm. each core. So they use PVC pipe or <laughs> they use an aluminum pipe and they just drive that right into the ground and they try to get it as low as they can, uh, Next to a wall, or in this case, when you were there, it was on top of the roof of the structure of the chamber, uh, the oracle chamber. And uh, the idea is that the chamber had to be built first, and then the dirt was deposited after the construction, you know? Right. So you can't mistake and say, well, that was just natural dirt. It has nothing to do with the construction. But in fact, the wall and the roof had to be built first, and then they may have sprinkled some soil over the top of the structure, and then you have that natural build up. I think they call it pediogenesis. It's the creation of soil, again, from windblown soil and particle, uh, you know, coming out of the air, you know. And um, so they took four cores on Friday. It took all day to do this process. We had a gentleman, a doctor from uh, uh, University of Washington, and his two assistants who were from Brookhaven National Laboratory down in, uh, in New York. And uh, plus we had members from the New England Antiquities Research Association. We had a uh, Two state archaeologists from uh, Concord, New Hampshire. We had uh, our archaeologist, who was a past president of the New Hampshire Archaeological Society, and, and her assistant. And um, and then we had um, several other people there from different organizations that were actually. We had a geologist on staff too. He had his ma- couple of master's degrees, so he was there looking at the soils too and helping out wherever he could. But yeah, so they took four cores. They did three in the oracle chamber, and they did one on the wall in front of what we call the watch house. And they had to hammer those, you know, those those uh, tubes into the ground and take out the dirt and carefully um, uh, cover them with aluminum foil. And, and they did a lot of this inside of a tent. They call it like a dock room, you know. Oh yeah. And, yeah. And, and they, yeah. And then what they're going to do is send the soils off to the laboratory, and they left behind in each of the uh, test uh, holes um, a device that actually measures radioactivity for one year, and then they retrieve them. And I guess they have something that, I guess that gives them some information to help analyze the age of the dirt. And they shoot laser beams at the dirt. They have to do hydrochloric acid cleaning and all these different, it's all this chemical stuff they have to do. And then they shoot laser beams at it. 
gives off a luminescence, and it tells him again when the last time that Derek saw the light of day. So you build a structure, soil builds up next to it after the structure. Sometime, it could be hundreds of years after or dozens of years after. So the structure is going to be older than the, the date you get back. Absolutely. Um, yeah, but how much older, I'm not sure, but they can kind of probably figure that out roughly, you know. Um, what a cool process. <laughs> that, it, is, that is yeah. such a cool process. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a chamber they just did, and it was a separate, because they chose five New England places, and the doctor flew in about a week and a half ago, and, and he's actually here for about two weeks before he goes back to Washington State. And um, there was one uh, site in, in, in Pennsylvania. I think it's called the Oley Hill site. I haven't been to it. I've been to some sites in Pennsylvania, but I don't. I haven't been to that. And it was done in 2018 by, I think New England Antiquities was involved with it, but I don't believe Dr. Feather or any of the other people were on that particular project. The date just came back, though, after two years. And the median date that came back on that structure was 450 B.C. So it's, you know, instead of uh, this structure being something built by farmers two or 300 years ago, it appears that it goes back before Columbus and before the time of Christ. So, you know, that's been a big question. How old are these Northeast sites? And they're starting to date them now, you know. And uh, uh, if, you know, when they do date them, it, it changes a lot of things, right? It, it would change how a lot of people view these historic sites and how old they are and how old North America is, you know. And um, Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, hopefully we can break through to mainstream science and, uh, you know, and say, hey, look, you know, these these uh, these are all you were telling us about. Uh, cause there's, a, there's a couple hundred in New York alone that we didn't even know about. And we live here. So, it's, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, right in your backyard almost. I, I say Dutchess County, Putnam County and Westchester County have about uh, in, in it have about 200. If you go towards Monticello, Bethel. Uh, Woodstock, New York, into that area a little bit further, um, the numbers go up closer to 500 different sites of uh, stone, you know, stone constructions, basically. And um, and then in Danbury, Connecticut, and then if you had to cross to, like I mentioned, North Stonington, Connecticut, and Gunjiwamp, uh, some of these have been on TV, on um, History Channel, some of these sites. My dad got into it, like I say, in 1955. I think they knew of about 15 sites in the Northeast. Our site, uh, the Raymond, New Hampshire site, and uh, the Upton Chamber, Dungeon Womp down in Connecticut, and a couple other sites, you know, that they knew about. Uh, but the numbers have gone up uh, astronomically, and actually it's not just New England, it's from Quebec all the way down to the mid-Atlantic states, you know, Delaware, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and, of course, New York, your own backyard. Yeah. So these sites, uh, it may be, you know, we're finding the same stonework, by the way, Edwin, all the way out to the West Coast. Uh, certain features, when you look at them, it's like, wow, is that a coincidence? But you find several of the same features that we have at our site and some of the other New England sites, you know, a thousand, two thousand miles away in eastern Colorado, for, for instance, you know, the same kind of stonework. And you're like, wow, one thing could be coincidence. Two of these features could be coincidence. Three, four, five, you know, it's like, right. it's huh. too many. It's too many coincidences. And too that's, many coincidences. And that's, <laughs> and that's what's strange is do, do we have an idea of what culture may be responsible for? You know, some of these structures, especially America Stonehenge, mm-hmm. like, do we know what, what kind of, what culture may have done it? That's the million dollar question. Um, basically, there were three theories, and one of them said, you know, Farmer Patty built our site. Of course, 
I don't think he built all these other 800 sites across the Northeast either, you know. Oh, right. If he did, he'd be a pretty well-known guy of building sites with his five husky daughters and his one son there. That's a pretty, but, uh, uh, pretty eccentric guy. <laughs> yeah, pretty eccentric. Yeah, very prolific. But, uh, but you know, finding him, like I say, always, uh, we're finding the same thing in Mount Shasta, right around in California, right around there, the same kind of what we call serpentine walls. And uh, there are chevron-shaped walls, and then there's walls that go from boulder to boulder to boulder zigzagging. Um, and, and other features that are the same as we're finding on the East Coast. So it's not just the Northeast or even maybe out to New York and Ohio, but it, it seems to go right across the country. In, in Alabama, too, they, there's a 40-square mile with a lot of these features done down there, too. You know, we're supposed to visit that twice this year. And a gentleman from, um, a doctor from actually Jacksonville State University in Alabama was supposed to meet me on campus and take my wife and I and go see some of these Standing monoliths, carns, serpentine walls, they call them rattlesnake walls down there, and some of the other features that are similar to ours. And of course, uh, COVID 19, that kind of threw the, you know, the monkey wrench into that. So we'll probably do it next year, you know. Oh, um, cool. But Native American would be, you know, another very good possibility. They were here for at least 10,000 years. Or the other one is old world visitors, you know, coming across the ocean before Columbus, before the Vikings. And that's the one we. We know Native Americans uh, did an incredible amount of, you know, building across the Americas. But in the Northeast, um, it wasn't known that they built stone constructions, but that may be incorrect. That may be, uh, you know, the wrong assumption. They may have been involved with this. But there are some features that still indicate old world travels. There's inscriptions. There's some stone features on these structures that look identical. The size, the shape, the orientation, the core billing. And even measurements of these structures that seem to be the same as what's on the other side of the ocean in Western Europe. A uh, standard unit of measure, for instance, called the megalithic yard, seems to be here. But the markings on stones from Maine all the way down to Brazil, all the way up to the West Coast, um, are different Old World inscriptions. And at our site, there are three. There is Phoenician, Celtic, and Libyan, according to Dr. Barry Fell from Harvard University. Uh, whether he's correct or partially correct or incorrect, these markings are on the rocks, and it's a question of who did that. And they're, again, all across the country and all the way down to South America. And there are other, you know, types of scripts, Semitic scripts found too, he, uh, pro-Hebrew and some others that have been found, again, in the Americas, and they shouldn't really be here. There's place names, mountains, rivers, valleys, and gorges uh, throughout the Northeast that are the same, uh, both in Native American, for the same meaning as it is in Gaelic, which is, you know, Celtic, basically, like Lake Mentamagod, uh, Kortikichi Gorge, Amistad River, Merrimack River, and so forth, right across the landscape, that Dr. Barry Fell has list upon list upon list, not just a couple coincidences, but not only the word itself, but what the word means, you know, Merrimack River, Merrimack has a certain meaning behind it, Amistad has a certain meaning. Kortikichi, you know, has a meaning, you know, and Mount Monadnock and so forth. These are all words with meanings behind them, but they're the same in Native American as it is in Gaelic on both sides of the ocean. So wow. he felt there was a connection in the oceans. Again, like many people think the oceans were used as highways, not as barriers. And uh, But the first official visitors would be the Vikings, you know, about a thousand years ago. That's recognized today. And that's about it. You know, when Columbus comes along, but we think that there were other people coming across the Pacific as well as across the Atlantic into the Americas. Um, and there seems to be so much evidence supporting that, you know. 
It was not to take anything away from the Native Americans. In fact, the Cherokee say their ancestors came across what we call the Atlantic Ocean today. So, you know, some of the legends, the oral tradition of Native Americans yeah, so who built our site is still a question, but the Phoenician writing, the Libyan and Celtic script, the Glenberry felt, and three of those, uh, actually three different inscriptions were found in that chamber in ruins. So we got three carbon datings out of there. We found three stones, two, I believe, in 1967, and the third one in 1969. I might have that back because it may have been one in 67, two in 69. But those are the ones that sat in the building for several years. And Dr. Barry Fell came along in 1975, and he identified him as the uh, Phoenician living in Celtic script, according to him. Wow. So, wow, that's amazing. That's just it's it, to to have even a trace of like we were looking at the inscription inside of. Uh, I don't want to misquote it, but is it it's it's in the Oracle chamber, right? There's a um, uh, what is it? Uh, I don't want to say bizarre. I know I'm quoting. I'm saying it wrong. Um, but in any event, the the description inside of the tomb was uh, super cool to see. You know, it's like that's you know, and to see to uh, I would could they couldn't date that? They couldn't date like the inscriptions, like or they were just like um, a, a carbon date them. Like that's not possible. Or right, yeah, you can't date stone. You know, you have to have something organic. You know, oh, that was okay, one thing. Right. Um, there are lichen tests. Actually, I found through our records back in the early 60s, we actually submitted lichens off rock. Because if you quarry a stone, you have a fresh a fresh cut on that stone, a fresh head, you know? Right. And we have, you know, we had that when the site was built, possibly thousands of years ago. So they must have taken a surface that they knew was quarried thousands of years ago. They took these samples of uh, lichens and they sent it to a laboratory. I'm going to say in Miami. I actually have the records, you know? And I was quite surprised because people have talked about that even more recently. However, it wasn't the right type. There was two different things set, two uh, types of lichens, and neither one of them were candidates for this testing method. And like, oh, Don, you know, um, it has to be a certain type of lichen because it grows so slowly on the rock surface. So if you cut a rock, say, three or 4,000 years ago when the site was built, then, you know, this will grow on it very, very slowly. The patina will get on the rock, you know, it'll start aging and everything. And they can scrape that. But if you had a carving there, too, if you had made a carving and that had some patina in it and some of the lichens, they could say, okay, the carving is first and this stuff grew afterwards, so we can at least give you a minimum date. Right, but they idea. didn't have the right type of lichens, you know, and uh, maybe that's still a you know a possibility in the future. But they did, they did during this uh, OSL testing the other day when you were there, they did, you can actually, uh, again, not only dirt, but you can look at the back of the rock, say the rock. Uh, there's a rock in the oracle chamber, the back of it's against the soil, and it hasn't seen the light of day either, you know, since it was built. Right. They actually did some, they actually took some rocks and they actually were submitting some of that too for the back side of the rock. They had to make sure they identified it and everything. And again, it had to be all done in dark room. They had a, I, I don't know if you remember, they put. Oh, yeah, tarps. Uh, yeah, tarps <laughs> all <laughs> over. There, was co- yeah. there were coats, there yeah. were tarps, there were sweatshirts. <laughs> it's had yeah, to get- <laughs> yeah, I tried to get all the light out of there for sure. Absolutely, everything came out the cupboard. I know it was a, so, super, uh, it was a super cool process. I I loved being yeah. a part of it. Um, so what bo- what bones have you found on the site? Yeah, so they have found some bones on the site. Uh, well, let's see. On the main site, three bones were found by Mister Goodwin sometime about 1938, and they were on display in our building starting in around 1958 when we opened up. 
And in 1968, they were sent to the Smithsonian Institute in Washington. And a Dr. Wu Seal, I think her name is Hoyan, I believe her name was. I, we have the name down in our in our files. And she is a cult, she was a doctor of uh, physical anthropology at the Smithsonian, and she looked at the bones, actually a couple of different bones, but three of the bones that came out of the main site, and she identified those as human. She said they were quite dense, denser than she thought a human bone would be, but she also, I guess there were some markings on the bones too, and these little like scratches, kind of deep scratches in the bones were made while the bone was still alive, how the person was still alive, you know? Oh, wow. And like a sur- like did, surgery or like a... Uh, well, it brings up a lot of interesting um, <laughs> opinions and theories yeah. and ideas because you have this big table there, you know, the sacrificial table. So it brings that up pretty oh, quickly, true. you know, to the conversation. I I don't know, you know, it be um, you'd be guessing, I guess, but um, but it's interesting that it was human because usually bones in uh, New England will last a few centuries and then they decompose because of the acidity and soil. In certain cases, they will they will survive though. I I get the New Hampshire Archaeological Society publications. My dad was a member, you know, over well over 50 years ago. In fact, they used to participate in some of the excavations back then. But they do find bones in New Hampshire occasionally going back a few thousand years. So it's not, you know, uh, unheard of. But these bones were in the site. They may have been protected by some of the stone structures. I think they came out of the east, near the east-west chamber, which is in the uh, center of the site, the plaza area. Now, they sat in a building for many years, and they ended up in Washington. She examined them. And... Um, because they were out of the ground at that point over 30 years, uh, you, you couldn't do any radiocarbon dating. And radiocarbon dating actually um, started in 1950 with Dr. Libby. And um, he, so when the bones found 12 years before that, back in 1938, you know, you couldn't carbon date them. There was no such thing at that point. So once they became exposed and they were just sitting around, uh, you could no longer carbon date them. Just like those... Just like the OSL, you have to protect it from the elements, from light. You have to contain it in aluminum foil immediately right. and then get it to a laboratory as quick as you can. Um, and under the, oh, try to keep it the same moisture as you brought it out of the ground, which is not always possible, too. But you have to protect it from sunlight and everything. So when we get charcoal, yeah. you have to wrap it up and then send it to a lab. Well, they had these bones sitting there. And they can be carbon dated, of course, and they were just sitting there. And it's no longer without technology today possible to carbon date it. Uh, maybe in the future there'll be some ways, but what could we think is use DNA on them? Oh, and yeah. I've been talking to people about that because you can DNA bones going back, you know, uh, way back. I mean, you know, uh, I think they're going back. Somebody can correct me on that. Even millions of years, I think you can, as long as the DNA survives, you know, uh, at least hundreds of thousands of years. But these bones may only be, you know, they only they could be a few hundred years old. They could be a few thousand years old. It would still but, be cool uh, to know when, you know. It would still be yeah. an idea of when this person existed and why why it was there, you know. Yeah, and who they were, you know. It might give you a little idea of who these people were. Yeah. So there are three bones. And this year, when I started going, again, I'm going through all my dad's, uh, you know, he's got files, a hundred years worth of files. He's got files before he was even born that were, you know, about the time he was a kid, I guess, of the site with Mr. Goodwin and some people even before that. So um, I was looking and I found the, the whole, a couple of different um, files about these bones. I'm like, God, I had heard something about this years ago, you know, but here it is. And then I went into our into our museum. I'm looking around at the, all the different, you know, pieces of artifact we have in there. And I identified two of the bones. I'm like, these are the two bones. And I had seen them for years, and I didn't I didn't put them together with, you know, what went to the Smithsonian. 
The third one, however, one piece looks like it's missing an end on it. I'm wondering if somebody had actually taken a piece of it and sent it off for some sort of analysis at one point, maybe back in 68 or something. So I'm still looking for the file on that. But we do have the, we do have two of the three bones, and I think we have all three bones. And maybe DNA could be done. And she also looked at a couple other bones. One of them she identified as bison or buffalo. And she was kind of surprised. She didn't tell the, I think it was a gentleman in this case, her colleague, that where it came from. And she said she had him look at it for a second opinion, and it looks like it's bison. And then she told him where it was from. And he says, oh, wow. He goes, but you know what? If you go back in time, the bison probably were in the New Hampshire and New England area. So that was found near the watch house, which I you probably remember the watch house. That's where we got some of the OSL yeah. testing at the end of the day. That's right. where we're working. Yeah, yeah, it's right, so, at the, uh, right at the beginning of the site. It, it looks like they're like it literally looks like a watchtower. <laughs> not a, ta- does, not yeah, a tower, yeah. but it looks like a watch pl- a place where you watch everything coming up or off the hill. You know, that's that's what we've always kind of thought. Exactly what you said there. Yeah, and it's right at the beginning of your tour. You know, and uh, and two other bones found in there, too, and they look like they might have been from a wild boar or pig. Now, Patty, he would have had some domesticated animals, even though he was a shoemaker, a tax collector, and helped with the uh, helped with the uh, paupers, taking in the paupers for eight years. You know, he got paid each year. He put out a bid for the, keep the poor people to stay with him. He was one of the poor farms in Salem until uh, 1837. That was the last year he did that. So he might have had, you know, some animals that got down there and perhaps some teeth. I don't know what happened, but, you know, there's some teeth in that chamber. And we also found a little bone in there that has a drill hole in it. So it's probably a pendant that was found in the watch house along with a stone that's very small, flat, and triangular. It looks like a piece of slate, actually. I think our archaeologist could identify it because her husband was a doctor of geology. But it had a hole through it, too. So we had, like, two pendants found in the watch house. She didn't look at the, the bone pendant back in 68, but she did look at the, uh, the two other bones that might be um, uh, wild pig or boar, but they weren't really settled on that, you know, her, and I guess she showed it to some of her colleagues, so there's a couple of there that they weren't really sure what they were, it was more of a guess. So, we have found bones on the hilltop, uh, three possible human bones, and then uh, buffalo, and then possible pig teeth, I guess they were, and then a little stone pendant and a bone pendant. So, wow. but that's about it so far on bones because they don't last long in the soil up there. Oh, for sure. It's just super intriguing that that you had found some and that, you know, and bison too, it would have to be pretty far back that they had them in New Hampshire, correct? Like they have to be yeah. quite a few years, Yeah, you know? Yeah, it would be a long time, yeah. Like, absolutely, yeah. Probably well before, you know, European occupation, you know, oh, uh, way back sure. before. Yeah. When were the so, when, what, sorry to interrupt you? When were the stone chambers built and the alignment stones put in place? Right. Uh, so we uh, began to work on the astronomical uh, alignments back in 1965, and it was a CBS special that came on TV. And they, you know, back in the days, the three networks and NET TV, which is PBS today. So they had a uh, special, and it was called Mystery of Stonehenge on CBS. And um, and you can still, I guess, get that on YouTube. You know, it's available. I. I saw it at the uh, National New Hampshire Library back in the 70s, 10 years after it first aired with a bunch of uh, workers. Our staff went over there, and we had a... Now you can just pick up your smartphone and watch it, you know? <laughs> so the reason for that special was a book by um, uh, Gerald Hopkins. He's from England originally, but he was at the uh, Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Mass., and I believe, I'm going to say Boston University. I get BC and BU mixed up sometimes, but 
He is a professor of astronomy. He wrote the book Stonehenge Decoded, which became a, a, a top seller, you know, a big hit. Um, and he, in his book, basically said Stonehenge is a, a computer. Not only could you, um, you know, you had the four seasons, you know, especially the solstices, but also the equinoxes. But um, it also um, would mark the lunar alignments, too, uh, the 18 and a half year lunar alignments, and the cross quarter days, I believe. But if you could track the moon, the lunar alignments, uh, very carefully, he said you could actually predict eclipses, you know. And if you could predict eclipses, you'd have, a, as a priest, astronomer, or whatever, you know, one of the hierarchy in the, um, in the group of, you know, the civilization there, you oh, could man. control a lot of people with that, you know. So oh, especially yeah, a silver eclipse or something, you know, they would have been, they would have been, you know, they would have been praying in front of you, you know, that kind of thing and giving you a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of <clears throat> respect for that, you know. Um, <clears throat> so that book came out. The TV show was made, and it's my dad and a lot of the uh, members of the New England Antiquities Research Association and other people saw that. We were well aware that around the main site, out in the woods, were these monoliths. These are big stones that are shaped like arrowheads just out in the middle of the woods. And even Mr. Gooder knew about it um, back in the 1930s and 40s. <clears throat> but his concentration, of course, is where that one acre, you know, where the chain link fences were located, and, and the watch house, those two things he really focused on. But, um, so back in 67, we decided to open up one of the, um, one of the stones, and they actually had to clear about 800 feet of trees, a great big swath through the woods, to the, from the main site to the southwest direction, and we felt that that stone monolith might be a winter solstice sunset. Back in those days, you couldn't even see a sunrise or a sunset at our site because the woods surrounded the hilltop, you know. It was just pretty dense forest. So they opened it up in 67, and um, we uh, we patiently waited on the winter solstice, but the weather didn't cooperate, and it didn't in 68 or 69. But 50 years ago this coming winter, my dad and I, we still lived up in Derry, New Hampshire. We came down with our neighbor from up there, and we met our manager who lived uh, in a house abutting our property and uh, the four of us went up and we had built a wooden snowmobile out of pots he was very very uh a very smart gentleman and i uh, ended up being a nuclear physicist but he uh was very creative and he built the snowmobile and then we used it we used it to break the trail about a third of a mile through the uh trails up to the site and it was about a foot of snow so he went up there on uh, december 20th uh, 1970 and we stood there watching and waiting and hoping the clouds wouldn't ruin it for us and towards the evening, um, just before sunset, it's just almost a perfect sky with a couple of little clouds and the sunset right over the top of the stone. And, you know, we were, we were all just amazed by the sight of that, you know. Wow, what, yeah. a, what a discovery, you know. What, yeah. a, what a discovery. What, really, a way, what a way to witness it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it was pretty cool. You know, we didn't, you know, and we, I guess we all felt the same time. Maybe we're the first people to see this since the last, you know, the, the original builders, perhaps, you know. So it was kind of not only cold, we got chills, but we got chills because of that, too, you know. And it, we took pictures. My dad took a whole sequence of slides. And there's a painting in the in the museum today uh, before you go out the back door on the right side. When you visit us, you'll see a painting on the wall. And it is of that 1970 very first time uh, seeing a sunset or sunrise. It was a sunset in this case. And uh, so we'll be celebrating the 50th anniversary of that. But that really speeded up the uh, interest and the work and research on the astronomical alignments. So right after that, we began clearing out some of the other avenues to uh, these monoliths. 
And um, by 1973, we realized we we're going to have to get a, a survey of this site, an accurate survey done by a professional surveyor. So we hired Beverly Pearson Associates of Gary, New Hampshire, and he was a president of New England Surveyors Association. And his son was also a surveyor, part of the part of the survey company. His name was Charlie Pearson. He uh, was he came down. Uh, we hired him, um, and he began his survey work on the site. And he did it kind of. Um, um, we we couldn't pay him to do the whole thing at once. So as we raised money, we'd have him come in and he'd spend a day or two or three surveying with his team, and then he would leave. He go through and crunch the numbers, give us some data, and then he'd come back when we had more money. So we did that over the course of five years to 1977. In the meantime, my uncle Oz, he was a very smart individual. He was uh, uh, working on the site on the astronomy, too, and we got our own transit. We got our own uh, stadia rod and a pseudo-compass. And he went out and did some of his own calculations. And then there was a third gentleman from Vermont who was uh, an engineer, too, and he was an astronomer, an amateur astronomer, and he built his own telescopes and equilateral, uh, what did they call it? He had his own uh, equilateral telescope, I guess it was. So it was something pretty cool that he designed. He built his own telescopes, too. He worked for a guy named Bell um, up in Canada. They were launching uh, satellites by Canon into space, you know. Yeah. And then he ended up working for in Bedford, Massachusetts at the Air Force Laboratory. But so he did it. So three different it was the uh, surveyor and then my uncle Oz for the team. And then there was a gentleman from Vermont who was working on some Vermont sites up in Woodstock, Royalton, Putney, Vermont, where there's some of these stone chambers that astronomical on. But he came down into New Hampshire to our site. And he spent quite a bit of time independently doing his own survey on the uh, standing stones. And and in the um, in the end, when they compared all the notes, they agreed with one another, you know, kind of cross check. But um, so Charlie Pearson's work, though, however, um, in 1977, we took his, because he was a professional, we sent all his data to the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And in 78, we get the results back that if these were used for astronomical purposes, they would work about 1800 BC, plus or minus a few hundred years due to the Earth's kill. So that, that was really very encouraging. You know, it agreed with the 1971 carbon dating, the 4,000 year old one I mentioned. And what they said too is you have, uh, we have 24 alignments, uh, with the sun and moon, but you have 25 alignments for the stars. And we only knew that we had the true north alignment with Polaris, which is a gold star today. Yep. But we weren't really aware of the other points that he surveyed might be alignments with other stars, like Sirius and some of the other bright stars, you know. And so, um, that was really exciting news. And that was in 1978. And we're actually today still working on this. Uh, over 40 years later since the results, we're still doing work on the astronomy. And today we think we have 51 alignments for the sun, moon, and stars. And we also have alignments, uh, well, actually, a uh, constellation like Draco, the dragon. Um, it's mm. one of the 88 constellations. And 4,000 years ago, one of its stars, uh, which is Alpha Draconis or Thuban, was the pole star. It was not Polaris. So in the evening, you would have been looking up at the pole star or Thuban. It would have been uh, its body would have been Draco, and it would have been spinning around it very slowly during the course of the evening. And that's a star that the Egyptians would have been looking at, and they thought that was a gateway to heaven. Like you know, other cultures had their own idea of what that's that star doesn't move. It's an important star. Everything is circumpolar or you know rising and setting stars, but this star does not move. You know, and they had different names for it, but they thought that might be the gateway to heaven. So. Draco would have been a focus back then, or it would have been a focal point back thousands of years ago. And uh, Draco 
we think inspired some of the serpent wall building at our site. So we have uh, I was, gonna, I was sorry to interrupt you. I was going to ask because when we were there, you had uh, pointed out the um, the uh, Ouroboros to us, and um, how, how long did you say it was? Twenty five hundred and fifty feet, I believe. Good memory. Yeah, yeah. right on the money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because like when we on our way out, we had we we noticed it on our way in, but after we had spoken to you and you were saying our goodbyes, we had stopped on the way back, and it. Man, that thing looks like a giant serpent head. Doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it really? It looks like it's gonna come after you. I mean, we've been walking by it for decades, you know, and people before that. But one thing was there were a lot more woods and brush there. We've been I've been cleaning, particularly since I retired. There's a lot of cleaning with hedge trimmer, you know, chainsaws, and you know, um, and just thinning it out so you can actually see that. But when we got lighter in this year for the very first time. Um, Handheld lighter, I should say, because we've had lighter pictures of the site from 2011. I believe the uh, U.S. was completely lidar starting in over 10 years ago, and they just finished it, I think, in 2018 across the nation. So we have great big blown-up pictures of our site, of our hilltop at lidar from around, I'd say, about nine years ago. And it's pretty cool, but it's pretty blurry, and you can see the walls, but you can't make out any details because the resolution isn't very good. It's airborne um, from a plane. Then they use drones, but this gentleman has the handheld, and they've only had that out for about less than two years. And he's from Connecticut. His name is Tom Elmore, and he has his company, uh, GeoNav, um, out of Suffield, Connecticut. And uh, he's been told he's the only one using that for this type of work, using it on ancient sites, and he's one of the only ones right now that has the device, I guess, on the East Coast, although I'm sure that's starting to sell him. But um, he approached me back. And I think late February to see if he'd be interested in having him do some LIDAR scanning of our site. And I almost, you know, jumped out of my seat because I had just done a radio show um, and with a gentleman on the West Coast. He's pretty well known. And he said, you know, you got to get LIDAR to say some really good resolution. You know, you got to get GPR there. And so when this guy called me up about two weeks after that show was on, I'm like, wow. And not only does he have LIDAR, but he's got a friend from... Waltham Mass, who has a ground penetration radar, and she has a, a his GPS pole that costs like uh, sixteen grand. She can do very, very accurate, you know, GPS measurements with it. So um, he started doing scanning in in May, and what we do, what we're doing is the fifteen acres of the hundred ten acres that contain the astronomical alignments, you know, which we started surveying in nineteen seventy three, and I believe he said he's put in about six hundred hours worth of work scanning, and then processing all the data. His um, LIDAR will put out 300,000 points per second, and each square meter will get about 150,000 points, which the resolution can be down to about one centimeter. So drone amazing, amazing yeah. resolution. Right. The resolution is <laughs> incredible, yeah. And, and, and uh, he said the drone LIDAR, you know, the drone is very good too, but he said that puts out at least as about two or three months ago, they put out about four to 800 points per square meter compared to 150,000. And airborne LIDAR, which is probably improving too as we speak, was around four to eight points per square meter. That's why we had such blurry pictures, you know, from, you know, 2011. And um, so we might be able to use his his um, scanning as down to a centimeter. We're probably going to not only have incredible imaging of the uh, walls and structures and everything, and on the computer, you can look underneath the structure looking up. You can look down as if you're in a plane looking down, even though it's handheld. 
And um, it's all 3D. It has a high-definition camera, so it blends out with the LiDAR. The, the uh, unit has 16 lasers on it that shoot out 80 meters as he's walking. And um, he bought a supercomputer to try to uh, process this, but it's still, you know, he spent months processing it, like I say, about 600 hours. And, um, yeah, so we went to find a standard unit to measure because one of the questions about the site that came up in the 1930s by Mr. Goodwin's right-hand man, the supervisor on the, on the project at the museum, was a guy named Roscoe Whitney from Lemonster, Massachusetts. He was an MIT engineer. And he uh, did some beautiful um, drawings of the site. He used a plane table so he could cross-section, profile, and plan view uh, all the scale of our site. Very, very accurate, which is great. We still have all that data today. But he mentions, he goes, you know, whoever built this site either didn't know about or give a damn about linear measurements because I've measured these sites, these structures, you know, the width, height, length of these. He goes, they, they either didn't know about linear measurements or didn't give a damn about them. I look at imperial measurements of inches, feet, yards, and uh, I guess the old rod. And he goes, this site does not conform to that. So if the patty's built it, you think you find things, you know, made in inches or feet or whatever, you know? And right. like the yeah. standard measurement of the time, for sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it does not, you know. And um, not only that, but we're finding that the structures weren't even 90 degree corners. You know, we're finding trapezoid shape to that chamber noise, the groove on the sacrificial table. The top of the, the top of it is about nine inches narrower of the big, it looks like a rectangular groove. It's trapezoid in shape. And we only found that out uh, four years ago. And we've been there for how many years, you know? It's like, oops, kind of embarrassing, you know, in a way. Uh, but, I mean, but the, for the technology that they they had in the 70s, you know, it's uh, quite a bit different than it is like today. Yeah, hell oh, yeah, it's, it's like magic today. The stuff we get today would look like magic. <laughs> that the computers, even on your phone, there's so many different apps you can do on your phone, you know, yeah. even for astronomical purposes, like a Sunseeker app or one of those, you know, you okay. can do. I have a. St- we actually did it while we were on the site, Dennis. Uh, I have oh. a, I have an app that is called um, Star Walk Two or something like that, and it literally oh. it shows you all the constellations and stuff. And it was amazing using that in line with all of the stars. It was so Isn't cool. that cool? So you can cool. do it. You can do it yourself and prove it to yourself if you want. You know, by bringing that. That is pretty cool you did that, you know, and anybody can do that, you know, uh, as long as they learn how to use it, you know, it, it's pretty cool. I know our surveyor, I saw him again, the one that was there in the 70s, he visited us about a year and a half ago, and I even talked to him on the phone by emails. He's supposed to come back and look at some of the serpentine walls, because back when he did it, back in the 70s, they were all in the brush, you couldn't see them. And uh, he just went to points, you know, different points, you know, on the walls where the wall will bend or where the standing monolith is and that kind of stuff, you know. Very, very accurate measurements he did. But connecting the dots and seeing that some of these walls they undulate vertically or horizontally, they have a head, body, and tail. He didn't, he's like, oh my God, I, you know, well, we didn't see that. I said, well, part of it's still all hidden in the brush for one thing. When you're looking at monoliths, you're looking where a wall takes a sudden turn, you know, or where a wall ends or begins, you know. But we got 13, 13 walls up there and one up to 2,550 feet. He goes, you know, GPS is kind of replacing my. You know, my, my field that I went in, you know, in his dad's field of survey, you know, the engineering, because this is being replaced because people can do a GPS now and with LIDAR, you know, and it's, you know, because we're almost becoming obsolete, you know, because they still use surveys, but it goes, it's going down that road now, you know, 
Uh, well, yeah, everything's getting so much more technical, and it's tough for them, too, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, it's technology. So, um, but on this project of the OSL, you know, we did use the LIDAR, and Tom already did the 15 acres, and then when you were there, uh, Doria brought out her, uh, her GPR, and unfortunately, I couldn't spend the whole time with her. I believe she brought out two different antennas, you know, wavelengths. She was measuring the uh, roof of the oracle chamber where we were taking some of the samples from. And um, she has to process that data, too. She's going to send me the, the information. And that will give us a good idea of how that structure is constructed, you know, and any, anything interesting, particularly how much dirt is on the roof of that and how the walls you can't see that are below the ground are shaped or built, you know. Maybe there'll be something there that we want to excavate or look at a little closer, too, you know, that hasn't been touched yet, you know. Absolutely. So, uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Seeing, her, seeing her do that was uh, really cool because she, <laughs> they set all the, the flags and they set all of the stuff and then she had that big, it almost looked like a go-kart in a sense, like a little, <laughs> you know, and, uh, <laughs> it was really yeah. cool, it was really cool, you know. Yeah, so, it is pretty cool. How long you is, know what she's, oh, oh go ahead. How long does it usually take to process the, the data on like certain things like the cores or the um the GPR? The GPR, I'm not sure. I don't think it takes as long as Tom, you know, because he, he did 15 acres and she's doing a smaller area, but it's still a lot of data, you know. So I'm hoping to hear back from her pretty soon, you know. Unlike the cores, which um I believe, you know, will take closer to uh, – Oh, gosh, it could take a year. And I think what they have to do is take those little, you know, each of the holes, they put in like a little, um, I mentioned a little sensor in there. And the sensor measures the radioactivity. And they have a name of the sensor. They call it like the altimeter, I think. And they have four of them up there, you know, in the holes. And they got to collect those to measure it against whatever, you know, comes out of the testing, you know. I guess kind of like a baseline thing, I guess. Or I don't know the technical words. But um, so we're talking almost a year for the OSL. But I think. Doria's uh, GPI, she's going to get me some information hopefully pretty soon. I'm, I'm in touch with her quite often. And then Tom is pretty much finishing up his 15 acres on us. You know, he's he's doing some last-minute stuff, and then we're going to go out and do a lecture probably at a nearer meeting whenever you can do them again, you know. Yeah. Everything's virtual now. Uh, we'll get together, and we're going to do that. And he'll give all the technical stuff. I'll give all the all my, you know, the knowledge I have about the site, you know, we'll do it together, you know, and uh, he's going to blend his technology with Doria's, and I believe, again, that's the first time that's been done, so ground penetration radar scanning mixed with the uh, LIDAR, and so you'll have above the ground and below the ground, you know, it'll be 3D, mm-hmm. and it'll be uh, a Superman vision kind of thing. Oh, you know? That's amazing, that's X-ray vision, for sure. <laughs> that is so cool, yeah, I think that's going to be We'd love to do the whole hundred, uh, the whole hundred ten acres with lidar and radar, but you know, it's especially with the radar, it's a much slower process. You know, she had to flag everything where Tom can walk around, and he has to work really hard. You know, uh, carrying that equipment around. You know, I, I see him out there sweating on the fifteen acres. It's a lot of work for him. It's it, it is a lot, and I give him so much credit. Mm-hmm. And Doria too, moving that looks like a lawnmower almost. You know, all around over the rocks and the roots, and it's uh, and had to flag it every five feet. You know, and and record everything. It's it's a lot of it's a lot of work to set that up, you know. Oh, for sure. So, like, out of the 110 acres, have you guys? Do you know exactly what's on all of these acres, or are you guys just still discovering? Yeah, we're still discovering things, and we are doing another project. It's a forest 
management project, and we've been thinking about it for years. And Dr. David, the late Dr. David Smith told me, he died in 2016. He kept telling me over the last uh, couple of years before he passed away that we should have the uh, a licensed forester come down and you should thin your forest because uh, you'll be able to see so much more with the astronomical alignments. You'll be able to see the walls because we just, we hadn't even discovered the serpentine walls at that time. And they show up like a sore thumb once the, the trees are thinned out. But also uh, other other features out there. There's about 34 great, most of them are pretty good-sized slabs. These are quarried slabs that the ancient builders must have been going out on what at that time would have been a pretty bare hill. And they would go out there and they would work a fissure or crack in the bedrock, and they would separate it and raise these stones up, prop them up with a rounded field stone by the glaciers, and then they would start hammering the edges of the stone we call it uh, percussion flaking, you know, a big stone hammer against the edge, and they were dressing the stone by, just like napping an arrowhead, if you will, but on a big scale. And um, then, for some reason, they left about 34 of these stones, some of them up to a 1,000 feet from the main site, and a lot of them downhill. Uh, for some reason, they walked away from this project, and we found the very first slab that we knew was quarried back in 1982, one of our one of our staff members, and Dave was around at that time, and he told our staff, look for stones that might be slabs that have been raised up artificially and maybe a stone stuck underneath it, and perhaps the edge of it might show like dimpling or like scalloping where somebody had been striking it with a stone hammer. And she, this woman, Mary, she was one of our guides who worked in the building too, and she was up having a picnic lunch. At that time, uh, it was kind of just out in the woods near the North Stone. Just, uh, she was out there peacefully by herself. Um, Today, it's much more open because we thinned out the forest, but she's sitting there looking around her and said, see, this stone looks kind of funny. She looked underneath it, and she looked at the edge of it. She realized that the stone looked like it had been propped up, and the edge of it looked like it was serrated or dimpled. And um, and then she looked at it closer and said, oh, there's a stone stuck underneath it holding it up. She brought it to the attention of Dr. David Stewart-Smith in 82, and he uh, jumped right on that and showed some other you know, members of the New England Antiquities and other people uh, the stone and said, I think we have a candidate here of an ancient quarried slab still in its original socket. And um, so the next year in 83, they did an excavation along the edge, the leading edge of it, where the, where the hammering would have taken place, and they found several inches underneath the soil all the little flakes of stone that had been knocked off it on top of the bedrock, you know. So we, uh, you know, there it was. There was one of a and he brought in Dr. Gary Hume, the state archaeologist. Mm-hmm. Dr. Gary Hume is still, is still alive. He's retired now. He worked for the state of New Hampshire. He was kind of mainstream, but he was, you know, he was kind enough to come down and you know, open his mind up a little bit. And he said, you know what? This is unmistakable. This big slab was shaped as always a, a ton and a half barrel head um, in its Stone Age technology, not something that's metal age and, and, you know, like the Patty family kind of stuff, you know, that era. Right. So, so he goes back quite a bit. Yeah, back to the Stone Age, you know, whatever that is. But we found 34 of these, and some of these are pretty huge. I mean, you know, several tons that have been raised. We call them lazy stones. They do, they call it that in Europe, too. It's a stone that's been raised up, maybe being shaped, but never transported to its final, you know, position in, in a chamber, perhaps, like a roof slab. So for some reason, and we found um, most of these actually just in the last few years. We, You know, we might have had maybe about 10 or 15, now we have 34. Uh, it kind of dawned on us about a year or two that we might be looking at a culture that was going to have a much grander plan for the site. We were going to a bigger construction plan, and if for some reason 
we abandoned the whole thing. Because for many years, we thought maybe the site was built. It could have been built over several generations of people, maybe uh, by different people, but it might have been complete. And then it fell, you know, to a state of ruins over centuries and centuries, you know, sprawling apart, and the Patty family came along in the late 1700s. But now it appears that they had a bigger plan for building this thing, and then they walked away from it. So, okay, what what happened there, you know? Was it disease? Was it some climatic, you know, change? Was it warfare? Was it something economic? Somebody suggested that if these were old world people, that when the Bronze Age ended and the Iron Age began, there was no longer a need for getting copper over here and bringing it back to the old world, the copper really would have come out of the Great Lakes area, you know, some of the most pure copper in the world, you know, in that area, area that greater area. Oh, yeah, but absolutely. They, yeah, and, if, and, and, you know, our site may have been just one of the sites that they initially, you know, settled, you know, coming in here to get the copper. They probably would have known this information from Native Americans, and Native Americans would have been exchanging copper from tribe to tribe. So it's a theory, you know, it's one of those interesting theories. But when the Iron Age began, the market on copper and tin would have fallen, and it was actually worth more than gold at one time, the Bronze Age, you know, all that tin and copper mixed together and made bronze. Um, but everywhere in the world is pretty much iron, you know, so you don't need to travel over the ocean to go get iron. It's everywhere, you know, bog iron and everything. So maybe the market fell, and our site was eventually abandoned for that. It's just one of those things you can't really prove. It's interesting. Um, it's a well, thought. It's a thought it's for a thought. sure. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah, it's worth considering, but no, I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you prove that? I'm not sure, unless we have more accurate dates of when the site was abandoned. You know, mm-hmm. and it coincides with the Iron Age. You know, that would be like, ah, oh, that's kind of interesting. Right. So yeah, so it's, mm-hmm. there's still so much, so much uh, space to cover out there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Right. Uh, yeah, and that's, yeah. I mean, and it's so exciting to to. To just just uh, have been a part of Friday it was it was amazing because who knows who knows what those results will return you know that's a huge day in America's Stonehenge's history you know and right New, New yeah. Hampshire's history uh, the country's history you know a, yeah that's, yeah that's well like you I'm kind of anxious you know uh, you know will the will the uh, samples you know be adequate will they be not contaminated and then. You know, what will the results? Will they kind of agree with the carbon dating and the astronomical data, as well as the uh, the, um, the uh, coring, the ancient coring techniques using hammerstones and stuff like that? Will they agree with that, or will it be older, or will it be, you know, more recent, you know? So it's like one of those questions. And, you know, and then how do you analyze all of that and all that data from all the other techniques, you know, if it agrees or disagrees with it, you know? It's like, wow. So those things are keeping me awake a little bit at night, too, but I guess I got about a year. <laughs> it's because you're so excited. That's why. <laughs> you're so, right, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, man. And, I'm, and like I said, that's that passion showing out in you. And um, it's, it really is exciting. And I, I didn't really expect to have you to have results yet. So I was like, all right, you know, we'll see what happens. It'd be cool, but, you know. <laughs> um, so just quick question real quick. Now, sure. uh, on the site, there is a stone that lines up um, with Stonehenge, the actual Stonehenge? Yeah, that uh, is the Summer Solstice Sunrise Stone. And it, like a lot of the uh, astronomical alignment for sites, so when you have an alignment, you have to have a back site 
the, the point near you, some sort of a reference, like a stone perhaps standing or something like that. And then you look in the distance, you see the foresight. So you, it's just like a gun sight. And then what you look at beyond that is usually the sun, moon, or star, you know, rising or setting. Um, but on that particular stone, uh, we had the astronomical platform, which were there were two pounds here until Mr. Goodwin unfortunately thought that they were just, uh, a, you know, a pile of uh, just, you know, stones, you know, with no purpose. He, uh, we, he photographed them. And he diagrammed them, and he wrote about them in his book called The Ruins of Great Ireland in New England in 1946. And that came out, you know, seven years after he began his work. But we have a tripod with a hoist on it. And he's lifting up stones from that back around 1937, destroying those two cairns. The cairns are just basically piles of rocks. They can be pretty, you know, pretty sophisticated, or they can just be a pile of rocks. In this case, he thought there were beehive chambers connected to the oracle chamber. They were not. So I think in that disappointment, he just said, well, he must be just wasted stone just thrown there. So he used them for reconstruction purposes of the ramp near the sacrificial table. We got pictures of the hoist lifting up rocks, you know, and a hand crank lifting rocks. He destroyed it, and it was uh, 40 years later. In the 1970s, he realized that the Astronomical Center was those two cairns. They marked the Astronomical Center. But the summer solstice sunrise is not only that one of the cairns, because they worked off every alignment, 51 alignments worked off those two points. And if you go down towards the summer solstice halfway, there's an oval-shaped circle, a kind of an elliptical-shaped stone circle. There's a stone in the center, and that was discovered in the 1970s. You stand in the center of that, you look at that stone, the summer solstice, and you notice that it doesn't have a point in the middle, like an arrowhead. The point's off to the left, and it's asymmetrical. And it has kind of a slope. And you're like, why did they design it like that when the other ones look like arrowheads? When we finally cleared the trees out in 1970, I think 73, 74, to the horizon, we looked, and out there in the horizon, we could see two hills. And the hills were shaped in that same shape of the notch. But what they did is they took and they quarried this slab, they stood it up, and they actually shaped the stone to fit into the notch, which is about four miles distant. So you have the astronomical platform I mentioned where the ponds were, you have the oval with the stone in the middle that you stood at, and then you have the standing stone, which has an asymmetrical top, and that fits right into the notch four miles distance. They actually fit into one another, and they found that is true of some sites in Europe. They call them a horizon feature. So this horizon feature we have at our site, and when the sun rises on June 21st or 20th, whatever, you know, each year it's a little different, it actually rises 90 degrees to the top of that stone and the five distant horizon. And then it goes up, and you get your sunrise. My son basically took that alignment from the astronomical platform through the stone circle, the stone, and then the horizon, and went across New England. And he just took it to see what was there, you know, because we have other sites in New England, and see if any of the sites he knew about might align with that. But um, there's not too much in Maine, actually. There are a few chambers, but not like Vermont, and the rest of New England is loaded in New York, too. Maine seems to... We keep finding them in Maine. Maybe there's a lot more we haven't discovered. Maine doesn't have too many chambers or structures or anything like that. But it took that line right across Nova Scotia, and it goes right across the Atlantic, just for kicks. He took it to the other side into Europe, and he, and he came down in southern England. And he kept changing. He used Google Earth, and he just kept changing the scale. And this was in 2012 where he was in college. It was uh, Actually, it was in a, he had a, some, a break from college. It was, uh, I think it was in the uh, spring, I think he found it, during the spring break. And uh, what he found out, he's been to Stonehenge a few times, we have, and he changed the scale, and he noticed it was in the Salisbury Plain of Stonehenge, and as he kept changing the scale, all of a sudden Stonehenge appeared, and as he blew it up, 
Yeah, Stonehenge really appeared, but the flame went right through one of the large pylons of Stonehenge. And I was like, oh my God, isn't that amazing? It could be a coincidence, probably a coincidence, maybe. But it's amazing. I, we've been looking at the stones since the 1970s. We never realized that if you had, you know, like Superman vision, if you could follow that line across the globe, it would go right through the center of Stonehenge. That's kind of weird, you know? Yeah, um, and I mean, again, how many coincidences <laughs> do you need? <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, uh, well, Ben Sherpa's on my back, and then that became uh, uh, near the New England Antiquities happened just after that, come in for their uh, for a meeting at our place, you know, like a field trip. And I was showing it to some of the members, and uh, one of the members, actually, uh, his friend was uh, Scott Walters, uh, and Scott was on a show just starting out called America on Earth on History Channel. And Scott got right on the, you know, talked to the producers from the, uh, the film company that's out there that does the show, and they made ours one of the priorities to come out and film that, and plus the rest of the things we've been talking about, except we didn't know about the serpentine walls back then and some other features, but they did a whole show about that. Well, since then, we've taken some of the other alignments, like True South goes through actually a serpentine well, actually, from the astronomical platform. It goes through Machu Picchu down in Peru. Oh, it, it's just pretty cool, you know. So that could be a coincidence, too. I mean, I know archaeologists love the word coincidence. Right. But <laughs> right, they do. It's really like that, yeah. But uh, if you go in the southwest, one of the solstice sunset, which is that very first one we saw in 1970, that line, if you extend it, goes into Mexico, goes to Kiwakiwakan, which I've been to, it goes to the Moon Pyramid. You know, they have the Sun Pyramid, the Moon Pyramid, and then the uh, Quetzalcoatl uh, Pyramid. But anyway, I've been there with my dad, and that goes right through the Moon Pyramid. So that's the winter solstice sunset. The equinox sunset goes through Pueblo Bonito at Chaco Canyon. We were there just about a year ago right now. And I uh, standing at Pueblo Bonito going, wow, that line coming right through me right now, you know, oh, from the equinox. That's, that's such a cool experience, <laughs> too. But that's what, that, that's what I'm saying, Dennis. Is, is what, what are the odds? You know, that like, and a lot of those places sit on, I don't know if you know anything about the ley lines, but sit on ley lines. And it would be, that's just, it's just an amazing coincidence, if it is a coincidence, that you guys would be sitting right aligned with everything else. <laughs> you know, it's, what are the odds? It, yeah, what are the odds? And, and no, you're right. We do kind of consider the ley line. My dad actually has a Alfred Watkins book in our library, too. I found that this year, and it's like 1927, I think. And he was a guy that had the old straight track. He kind of started the ley line idea in England. But um, so that's exciting to us. I mean, so I, what I can tell you is if you look here, and you, you know, if you go, if you had great vision, you could see, you know, this. They're all like World Heritage Sites, you know. They're like UNESCO World Heritage Sites, a very important site. And the other one, too, is the Equinox Sunrise, and that goes through the Canary Islands, and I didn't realize that they have pyramids there, and it goes right through the pyramids in the Canary Islands, and I may have an opportunity to get there next year. Um, I've been to Spain, but I've never been to Canary Islands. But if I go to Canary, I'm going to hop over to Spain uh, and then see some of the megaliths in Spain, because I've been there, but we saw medieval stuff. It's pretty cool. Um, they have some of the most amazing megalithic structures in Spain and part of Portugal, too. Um, and one other alignment, uh, the, the last one that I know about right now is the August 1st sunrise. It's across quarter days. It's one of the 51 alignments we have at the site. So they have the quarter days, which are the four seasons, and the cross quarter days, the days in between. And uh, that August 1st sunrise, and i got to do a little bit more work on this, and i tried it like about you know, half a dozen times. It ends up on the Giza Plateau with the Great Pyramid. So, uh, you know, it's kind of a surprise, too. I'm like, wow, 
you know. So I had to check it several times to make sure I made no errors in it. You know, you don't want to embarrass yourself. You know. But well, no, uh, it's tough. It's tough. So, like you said, a lot of people want to dismiss it, and it's uh, yeah, it, yeah. It, a lot of times there's no coincidence, you know, with these anchor <clears throat> sites, you know. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. How, so how would you say that this site compares to other sites around the globe? Like, uh, obviously, we were just getting into it, but like, like we said earlier, a lot of the times, like with the lentils and um, everything else, they they compare to certain cultures from from around the world, really. It really looks Western megalithic, I think. Uh, again, Native Americans were all around the site. We actually found, like I say, the pottery. We found a wigwam site near Apocamont, you know, the baby's about 2,000 years old. But it has a Western megalithic feel to it. Um, the East-West Chamber, to me, I, I saw this in 1976 looking at a Time Life book about megalithic sites in Europe. And again, the number about 50,000. I keep finding more than two over, you know, in different areas. Uh, the Spanish one was the most recent. They call it the Spanish Stonehenge because of a drought. I think the lake dried up and it's just beautiful. I think they were kind of aware of it because when they flooded it, you know, years and years ago, uh, I think they knew it was there, but now it's like exposed and they can use the latest technology on it. But um, our site looks like that. So the east-west chamber looks like the galley graves or what they call gallery or galley graves. So you're in northwest Ireland. And I've been to Ireland, but I didn't get to that part of Ireland. They're in Holland and they call them the giant's bed. And they're in... Um, France. And when I went to Karnak, I saw a couple in Karnak, and they always run true east-west, 20 to 60 feet in length, and they were used as tombs from our best knowledge today. And my one of my friends, who's a book writer and a member of the era, he was over in Holland last year, and he was looking at one of the giants that I, I was uh, on messenger with him. I said, okay, what's the orientation? He goes, it's true east-west. I said, that's just like our east-west chamber. And our east-west chamber fits within, you know, the parameters of uh, the size, the shape, and the orientation. Unfortunately, Mr. Goodwin back in the 1930s didn't have all the technology nor all the methodology that we use today. And when he cleaned out the dirt in these chambers, he may have been destroying some valuable information or data. Because if they were burials, the bones could be gone today, but the soil would contain some of the chemicals, possibly like you know potassium and calcium and some other things. So he would take some of the dirt, send into a laboratory and say, okay, what's it? What, what is in this, you know? And that might give you information, in fact, it was a burial chamber. Um, next to the east-west chamber is the bee hut, like the letter V is in Victor. Yeah. And, and it's the only chamber up there really not orientated north, south, east, and west. True, it's southwest facing, kind of towards the winter solstice, sunset. And we always knew that. And in the, again, in the 70s, when I became aware of some of the Western European uh, different styles of construction, we became aware of the wedge tombs of Ireland. And my dad and I went over there to Ireland and spent a week going all over Ireland looking at some of the 2,000 megalithic sites. I thought we, I think we see, saw a few dozen. We didn't see all 2,000, but you could spend a lifetime there, I guess, looking at them. But we did go and look for some in particular, like the wedge tombs. And they're always facing southwest. And we found a couple of them that were like the size, the shape, and the orientation, again, of our V-hut. And over there, they, again, they were used, uh, from our best knowledge, we used as tombs. And in Spain, they, I saw one that looked even closer because it not only uh, looked like our chamber, but it had the same notch on the roof, like a little half a moon notch carved into the, the roof slab like ours. And in front of it, on the left side, on the bedrock, we have a basin, like a, a cutout in the bedrock. And then when in Spain had the same place, it was about maybe a third the size of our basin, but in the same spot. 
into the right of the chamber, there's like these stones that look like at one time they may have been used as like the block, the structure, maybe you put the body in there or whatever remains, and then you would enclose it with these stones. And our structure has the same stone to the right. Uh, you know, they could have been moved there, you know, by, you know, maybe the patties could have put them there, but they've always been there to our best knowledge. But it looks just like what you see in Spain. They're pretty big, um, they're pretty big stones, Dennis. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Those, uh, we actually, uh, one of our guys took a picture with them. And they just, oh, you, just, for, oh. just for perspective, to, to, like, uh, it was definitely over six foot, <laughs> six foot tall, for sure. <laughs> uh, that's pretty uh, That's pretty cool. So I think it's a uh, megalithic feel. You know, in the megalithic sites, they go right through... Um, you know, into Russia, the Ural Mountains have about 3,500 of them. And there's a, um, uh, the Ural Mountain Megaliths, a website. And one of the structures that pops up right away looks like one of the chambers that's in Wyndham, New Hampshire. I mean, the style of it, you know, the different features of it. And when you when I show it to people, I have both pictures on my phone. You know, I did screenshot. Uh, I show it to them. And they say, well, it's the same structure. I said, well, no, this one's in Wyndham, New Hampshire. And according to authorities, it's supposed to be a root cellar from 200 years ago. And they well, where's that one from? I said, well, that one's about 7,000 miles away in the Ural Mountains. And they consider that megalithic and ancient Stone Age structure. They said, they look like the same structure, you know? I mean, if you look at the details of it, you say, oh, no, and it's the same structure. You know, the roof, the lintel, the stone in front that looks like there's a blocking stone, the walls, everything. Uh, the one in Wyndham, I believe, is a, um, I think it faces, uh, I'm going to say True South, I think. I don't know what the one in the Ural Mountains. But there were 3,500 chambers over there in Europe. They go into China, India, Korea had about a, the South Korea had about a hundred thousand of these. It's funny, Mr. Goodwin back in the 1930s and 40s, and he, he when he was doing all this investigation, he wrote the four books. The one that was about our site in particular was called The Ruins of Great Ireland and New England, as I mentioned. And he uh, mentions uh, structures in uh, different places of the world, including South Korea. And we only found that out about 10 years ago from a businessman that had just been over there. He goes, you know, there are megalithic sites in South Korea. And I said, I had no idea. And they have some, they have amazing, and they may have been almost a hundred thousand of them, and they take good care of them over there from my see. They make them like parks, they protect them, they really, they really kind of uh, care and protect these structures in South Korea from what I can see, you know. Um, but they're uh, also in Australia, and the most recent I found is in New Zealand has megalithic sites, and I did a radio show out of there with a host, and he never mentioned any megalithic sites in his country, and I think it's something fairly new then. Maybe he didn't know at the time. But South America has them too. So they're on six continents out of seven continents, uh, megalithic sites. And you have one right in your backyard. We got one right in my backyard, literally, yes. That's so amazing. <laughs> uh, Dennis, tell me about the stu- the sunrise. Remember when you were showing me the video in, um, the, on Friday about the sunrise? It was coming up over a stone inside the Watts house. Was, right, yeah. What do you, yeah. What do you think Thanks that for- is? Bringing that up, yeah, we saw that six months ago on the uh, spring equinox. Uh, that structure is the head of the longest serpentine wall, we believe, and it wraps itself around 2,550 feet. It comes back in front of the watch house, one more hump, and then a pointed tail. And I think we showed you the LIDAR image of the watch house, how it looks like a serpent, you know, as we were oh, yeah. talking a little bit earlier. Absolutely. But, yeah, so this stone is a quartzite stone. It's in the back wall. And people have been talking about it for many, many decades, going, I wonder if that stone was placed there, because it's it's different than the rest of the stones. It's it's very obvious. It's a very, very kind of whitish color to it, and it is quartzite. 
So uh, I had a friend up from Texas named Haley. She was up a year and a half ago, and uh, she had a Sunseeker app on her phone, and she knew how to use it pretty good. And she was taking uh, astronomy and astrophysics in college and everything down in Texas. So she had it out, and I said, what do you think? You know, she, she looked at it, and I said, I think it might be winter solstice uh, because of the angle, but, you know, the trees are in the way and everything. But she pulled it out. She went into the chamber and, you know, spent a few minutes orientating her phone with this app. She goes, it looks like it's spring or spring fall equinox, sunrise. It will be in the morning, uh, sometime maybe around 9 o'clock-ish. We're like, wow, okay. So we uh, ha- have been doing that forest management thing, and fortunately, before they pulled out in February, uh, because the ground got soft, you know, they haven't finished the project yet. They had just cleared in front of it some of the trees there. And uh, it was wonderful because it opened it up to almost where you could see the sunrise. You could never see that before, at least in our time. So on the spring equinox, a bunch of us gathered up there. We had cameras. My daughter-in-law set up some cameras and everything. We were inside the chamber. And we uh, kind of waited patiently for the sunrise. And as it did, uh, we thought the sun would just glow in the sunlight. It would be just kind of very bright. But what really happened was the shape of the entrance of the chamber created a shadow and light effect. And so as the sun rose over 30 minutes, around just after 8 o'clock, it actually framed it. For several minutes, the shadow and light framed the shape of that stone. And I showed you that on my phone, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. We've seen it. All of us did. You said all of us. And it was uh, yeah. it was pretty yeah. amazing to see that happening. And I think you even had it in like, kind of like slow motion. And yeah. it it was perfect over the stone. It was, there was yeah. no denying it. The the quartzite <laughs> stone was there, and it was it was amazing. Man. Wasn't that so cool? Yeah, I just I just framed it, you know. So they had to put some time into that. I don't know how they would have made sure they must. Have, I don't know if it was trial and error or what, but they made that entrance way, you know, a certain shape, and then as the sunlight goes into it, because it will shadow it and light it and everything. And it just frames the shape as you saw. And at the end of that 30 minutes, because we had a time lapse on it, about a 30-second YouTube video, it looks like a pointer pointing back at that stone. And it reminds me of Chaco Canyon, you know, with a uh, sun dagger, you know, that you can Google too. In a way, although those are kind of petroglyphs that are being illuminated, ours is a, a stone that could be considered an egg, you know. And uh, it's considered by many ancient people the sun was a god. The rays would come down and fertilize the egg and the mother earth, you know, in the womb is the is kind of the interior of the watch house, you know. And it'll, it's kind of like New Grange in Ireland, but that's winter solstice. Newport Tower in Rhode Island has an egg shape in one of the arches, and the sunlight on the winter solstice at 9 o'clock like New Grange would go in there, and it illuminates the egg. Again, probably fertilization. And there were a couple caves in in Colorado, one called the Pathfinder, one called the Crack Creek. Uh, and then there's a sun, uh, the Sun Temple, um, which is uh, also in the western part of Colorado, I think, Mojave North in California, and Anubis Cave in Oklahoma. These are all different sites that aren't well known to the public. And in some cases, it's kind of good because of vandalism, you know. But we have pictures of people, a lot of researchers out there over the last couple of decades, filming the same thing that we did this spring. And particularly on the equinox, so the ones I just mentioned, except for Newgrange and the Newport Tower, those are winter solstice, they're all equinox and all tied into a serpent, petroglyph. So on the equinox, spring and fall, the sunrise, in the morning, the sun will go into those structures and illuminate like a pointer right across the uh, serpent carvings. Ours doesn't have a carving, but it is the head of a serpent. 
and it is an equinox. And one other one would be uh, down at Chichen Itza down in, in Mexico, which I've been to. And on the equinox, if you're there, you can watch the serpent go down the staircase on the equinox. And it, so there's a serpent equinox tie-in in different cultures. And uh, that illumination and shadow light effect and a pointer, kind of like a finger pointer or a dagger, we have that at our site, and those other ones do too. So uh, what I like to do is get pictures of all of these and put them together, you know, so people can see this and see the comparisons, you know. And again, not coincidence, I don't think. I don't. I don't think so either, Dennis. And it's yeah. it's it's so strange that it's just all coming. <laughs> it's coming together for you, man. It's 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 all there. You know, we just. Yeah. It's tough that you guys get any any nonsense your way about this site. It's uh, it's such an amazing place to be. And it's so nice that the four of you joined us. You know, on on Friday, you know, to be a, a part of that and. It's like a pitch is worth a million words, you know, or a thousand words, because when you were there the other day, you know, I, I could be talking with you right now, and you'd be trying to imagine what I'm talking about. Um, but, I mean, the listeners can also go to our website, and on the website, StonehengeUSA.com, you can actually download an app, you know, and you can do a complete tour of our site, and it can be used actually at our site, or you can do it in your lazy boy, you know, at home or on the couch. Right. <laughs> and you can kind of cool. Uh, and some of the things that you and I have been talking about will be added to that eventually, you know, like that uh, illumination on the equinox. My daughter-in-law right now is out on maternity leave as we were talking. But some of these things are going to be added to that, you know, keep, you know, making improvements, adding new things that we find, you know. That's, absolutely. That. Keep adding it on yeah. and keep, you know, yeah. keep showcasing it because it it's so amazing, you know, and uh Certain things like that that match up around the globe are just, it's just, it can't be coincidence, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's coming to light, like you said, and uh, just spreading the information to people, making people aware of that, you know? So, so many people don't even know what our place is, even locally, you know? We get people from Salem, you know, just down the street, and they're like, well, I, and I think COVID-19, one of the, I mean, it's not a good disease at all, but one of the things that might be a positive is people are, Locally, you're starting to come to see a place like ours, you know. Um, stay at stay vacation, whatever they call it. They're coming a little closer, and they're like, "Wow, I never knew this place was here." And I said, "Well, we've been here since 1958." And they said, "Oh my God, I've been going by here for you know 30, 40 years, and they've never stopped." And now they bring their family, so that's kind of nice, you know. We are getting people from out of town. Uh, we're not getting any Europeans right now or Canadians right now because of you know what's going on, but. Uh, we are getting more local people from New Hampshire, New England, and the Northeast, and uh, and really nice people. And they once you see it, they all of a sudden get this interest in this thing. You know, it's like they never had; they didn't know it existed within them. I guess you know, like, well, this is pretty cool. This mystery, astronomy, an ancient site, perhaps an ancient civilization that built it. And it's all wrapped. Um, it's all wrapped in the womb, you know. And uh, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing for me too because. Yeah. I've dude, that was my third trip out there, and um, like every time it was it was better every time, and to to learn more about the astronomy and to learn about the the alignments has just been amazing. Like it's it's on such a bigger scale, you know. It's on it's yeah. it's not little to me, you know. And I've a lot of people that have the the four people that I or three people that I brought with me were blown away. Yeah. Oh, that's great. They were, they were great guys, too. I really enjoyed talking to all of you. And uh, Yeah, I think it's a little bit, you know, there's more to this site. I think maybe technology will uh, reveal a few things, you know, to us that, you know, there was even a, um, 
the satellite that was sent up. Uh, it was called the World U3 Satellite. I think it was sent up in 2014. And, and the lady, she's from um, Alabama, in Birmingham. And I've done a radio sh- couple radio shows out of a woman down there, a very nice lady. She does state radio and everything. And she actually is right where this woman is. And actually, Tom with LIDAR has spoken to this woman. And her name is Sarah Poppett. They call her a space archaeologist because her satellite has found um, uh, a, a site up at Canada, the second Viking settlement in Point Rosie, about 400 miles southwest of uh, Lonzo Meadow, the very first Viking site. It was uh, found in 1960, and that answered the question, you know, was anybody here before Columbus from Europe, you know, or from the Old World? Um, and of course, before that, people would be debating Colum- uh, the Vikings coming over, whether it was just myth or whether it was legend, you know, and it really happened. But yeah. her satellite recently found this Point Bosey, and they did a two-hour PBS special about that. She found, um, and I think LIDAR and her equipment found 60,000 more Guatemalan ruins that are Mayan recently, and uh, I think 19 more uh, pyramids in Egypt. So I think they're up to 139 pyramids now. So uh, we're hoping she can aim her satellite. She must have probably a backlog of stuff going for years, you know, down the road that people are, want to use her. So we get her to look down into the New England area or the Northeast, actually, to see, you know, if there's some interesting features that should be examined on foot, you know, by archaeologists and our researchers, you know, somewhere they're going to find more of these structures. Some of them will be, because even that Viking site was kind of buried, you know, so they can see into the ground a bit, disturbances and features that just don't look natural. So, yeah, her, no, they, first, were, they yeah. were discovering things, uh, what were they, uh, more Mexican, uh, not Mexican, uh, but South American um, settlements, like near the Mayan ruins, like they had found new Mayan ruins, like I think 150 yards from the like Tiwanaka or you know something like that. Like, uh, and yeah, they, you know, yeah. Using lidar and stuff like that, it's great. It's right. yeah. And I think her equipment too, and lidar, yeah, lidar there, and then that World View Tree satellite. And I think uh, in the in the Amazon jungle, they are starting to realize that there was uh, a civilization that was quite large compared to what people thought because they thought the jungle couldn't support any massive size of people. They're finding causeways, they're finding great big mounds where the villages were built and also uh, mounding for agriculture and uh, canal systems. And it was kind of that, like the city of Z, I read that book, um, you know, how a hundred years ago, I think Percy, what's his name, Percy, uh, I get the book actually, and the city of Z was made into a movie. And it was about the legendary cities that were in the Amazon jungle. And people thought, well, no, that couldn't be. That's all just fantasy, you know, that's myth. But it actually was actually, they, they really were. So some of the early, early explorers from Europe actually came upon them. But I I think disease might have wiped out the native. And very shortly thereafter, these things were covered with thick jungle. And all you heard was legends. And people said, ah, they're just a bunch of legends. These cities and the population was never there. But they actually modified, you know, part of the Amazon. It wasn't, you know, all natural. A lot of it had been, you know, with mounds and causeways and all sorts of canals and everything. It was actually, it was actually changed. So we'd love to see that kind of equipment used up here too to look at what we have, you know, and uh, New York, right through New England, you know, to see what else we get. And it goes into Quebec, Canada too, you know. Oh yeah, such so and it's so diverse. It's so it's it's all over the place. You know. Yeah. 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 It's, yep. a, it's amazing. Well, while I have you, Dennis, so in our in our emails, we had talked about how we have 35,000 hours of flight time, right? 
uh, flying. I yeah, flying. I've got about 30,000, 30, yeah, but close to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it felt like 35,000. It, it feels like 35,000. <laughs> In any of your flights, have you had any out-of-the-ordinary experiences as a pilot? In terms of, or even heard any of of certain out of the ordinary experiences as a pilot, like UFO. Yeah, I mean, I did a lot of night flying back in the eighties on a seven twenty seven. I was in the UPS system flying uh, out of Louisville, and it was all night flying, a week on, a week off, you know. And uh, a lot of the guys I flew with were, you know, Korean and, and Vietnam pilots too. And we talk about some of these things. Some had, it, some of the pilots had interest in it, and some others didn't, you know, weren't interested, but. Uh, some of the ones that are interested saw things, you know, in their military career, too, that weren't really explainable. Uh, at night, we'd be flying along, we'd see things, you know, sometimes mistaken like Venus, you know, or another star, or maybe a landing light on a plane, you know, 100 miles away. But the problem was we never had anything that was close encounter, but we, we saw things out there, and sometimes it would just disappear. I'm like, what, what the hell was that? I don't know. And then it wouldn't, it, you wouldn't see it. You might even ask the controller, do you have a target at 12 o'clock, maybe? 50 to 100 miles out there or something, you know, because at night there's not as much aircraft, particularly back in the 80s now, the sky's getting more crowded, or at least they were. Um, but my things I saw were actually uh, in a car uh, two, two times, going back around 66 with my dad and a friend, and we were up at one of the archaeologist camps on a lake, and we were returning at night, my sister too, and mom. Uh, so we're all in a station wagon, we're riding back, and then we saw something very bright, you know, brighter than Venus. Uh, compare it to, and as we went around the out, out of belt, uh, 293, around Manchester, um, we saw this thing, and as you go around, you know, we saw it from one side, as we went around, we saw it from, like, the southern look, so in other words, we saw it, as it, it looked to the southeast, and as we went around Manchester, the thing was in the east, and then as we went further, it was to the northeast, so it wasn't something like a star, and we were very curious, we don't know what we saw, it was at nighttime, but the next day on the radio station, it was it was being talked about. So I think we saw a UFO because people saw it around the city. That's now, so cool. last, last year in Kingston, New Hampshire, and that's where Betty Hill's from, uh, The Interrupted Journey, that's where she grew up. And she lived in Portsmouth, but she was born in Kingston. And Barney and Betty Hill, a 1961 abduction, was so famous. That's um, amazing. I was trying to get yeah. to the site while we were out there, but I think it's like an hour and a half. Somewhere. Yeah, it's in the White Mountains where it happened, uh, coming back from Montreal, you know. And uh, so Bonnie and Betty, he, he died in 69, you know, and we met her in 1974. She came to our museum, uh, actually to meet Hans Holzer and um, a couple of his guests. And then she became a lifetime friend of my mom's, you know. But um, we were going through that town last year after we got, uh, we, we ate over in Kingston and we got ice cream that my wife and I by ourselves in the car. Going through, uh, it was Route 111 going across Route 125, and it, it's a kind of a busy intersection with red lights and everything. As we went through, we looked to the right, to the north, and I saw something in the sky, and my wife saw it at the same time, and I said, oh my God, that looks like a, I, I couldn't quite figure out what it was, but I was thinking it was a KC-135, which actually they've been replaced. They were refueling tankers, or basically a 707 Boeing, right. the military had, but it was very dark in color. It was more angular, and it looked like if you if you could say it had a nose on it, the whole thing was tipped down towards the ground. And my wife really isn't a big, you know, it, she's not really big on UFOs. She's, she's kind of sniffing at me a little bit. I, you know, I, I don't think she totally doubts them, but she's never seen one, you know. 
And she just kept looking at it. All, and then we went to the intersection. We could not stop, you know, because it was too busy and it was, you know, green light. And we kept going, hoping to see a break in the woods. There's all woods along there. And we never got a break for about maybe five minutes. We considered turning around and going back and looking at it again, which maybe we should have, you know. And I'll say, I, I know aircraft pretty well. I've been a crew for 42 years, you know. And I've never seen anything like that. The only thing that came to mind, maybe I was looking at some sort of a uh, advertising blimp, but it's like kind of a black, gray color. And my wife goes, yeah, no, that's not what, she had a better look at it than I did. This was a passenger ship was on her side. You know, she could stare at it longer than I could. And uh, I would say, I got a friend from uh, down in your area. She's from West Coast in New York originally. She lives in Connecticut. And she saw something that sounded just like what I saw. And um, she reported it to MUFON. And she's waiting for them to, uh, you know, kind of look at it and everything else. But uh, I think we might have saw something quite similar. Now, if it was something that we made and it's up there, you know, uh, or a blimp or something, although my wife said it wasn't that, uh, that's explainable, you know. But what I saw, it really kind of sent shivers on my back because I see aircraft all the time, you know, over the years I flew. So what? Dennis, what what is it about New Hampshire? <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's kind of because the incident at Exeter, New Hampshire, in 1965, gets confused with Bonnie and Betty Hill's, you know, story. Which, which one is in the which one is that? Yeah, the incident at Exeter happened in '65, and it was uh, a gentleman uh, who was hitchhiking coming up to uh, Kensington, New Hampshire. Kensington, New Hampshire, by the way, is a little town that uh, is where, if you may remember, there were Lockerbie, Pan Am. Uh, terrorist over Scotland. Yes. The captain of that comes from that little town. It's that's what it's noted for. You know, it's a nice little town in New Hampshire. But this hitchhiker back in '65, I guess, was going up, and he saw something. I guess, and I I was in a radio show with a gentleman from out in Washington, and he actually's from New Hampshire. And he he actually was very articulate in the whole story because he interviewed the guy. But uh, this became, uh, I think. John Fuller wrote about buying Betty Hill, and John Fuller wrote about the incident exit and about this gentleman. He gets to a police station eventually. I think somebody picked him up, and he was totally shaken, so they brought him to the police station, if I recall, and maybe some of your listeners can correct the story. The police eventually went out to look back, with, went, took him back, and I think there was another woman, by the way, that was parked on a, a little island on the road, you know, like a little grass island she shouldn't have been parked on, and I think the police found her kind of historical around the same time and she saw the same thing and the police got back there and they're looking they don't see anything all of a sudden there it is and the police are all flipped out and Pease Air Force Base was a SAC base at the time and it's very close to that and I mentioned I thought that's where that KC-135 actually had B-52 and F-111s there it was a nuclear you know it was a SAC nuclear base you know and I flew with a lot of the guys in the airlines that retired from there and uh but they got involved with it too because it's so close to a nuclear installation, you know, back in 65, and it's still active. So it became a real big event. And, and again, a lot of people confuse the incident at Exeter with uh, Bonnie and Benny Hill, because they, because Bonnie, they were right there, at the, you know, that those towns were all together. But they're two separate incidents. It happened four years apart. And they didn't, and, uh, they, they didn't come out public with it at first, right? The, the, the Hills, yeah. they, 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 they did not. They actually they didn't want to. Right. Yeah, they yeah. they didn't want pe- they didn't want people you know talking about it. They were they kept it pretty quiet, but they had nightmares. They eventually went under I guess hypnosis, I guess you know. And yeah. I think that there was a famous um, uh, psychologist from Boston. The name escapes me, but he put them under that separately, and they came up with the same stories. 
uh, over the course of, I forget how long, but it was quite a while of having them interviewed, you know. The psychologists interviewed them separately, you know, for quite a while. Um, not just one day, but many, many, I think over the course of a couple of years. But Barney and Betty Hill really didn't want to discuss it. I think they might have been kind of embarrassed by it. They were very bothered by it. And Betty's dress had some sort of um, markings on it. She kept the dress. And the Chevrolet had shiny spots, I believe, on the trunk. And there was something about their dog, too. They, the dog had some issues, too. I forget what that was. Bonnie died in 69. Some people say, well, maybe he got, you know, too much radiation. But it's, I don't know if it's speculation or not. But he died in 69 from cancer. But Betty just died, uh, I think, in 2003. And her um, niece, Kathleen Martin, she's been to our site, like Betty. And I met Travis Walton from the 1975, you know. Yeah, that's really an And Travis is a really sharp guy, you know, and he. He came to our, our museum. I've met him a couple times, and uh, a, very, a real gentleman, a really nice guy, very, very smart, you know. I mean, and, you know, and he's so sincere. So whatever happened, you know, you're looking at somebody and just like, wow, you know, this guy. Well, in, coupled, in story, coupled with your own experiences, you know, it's uh, it's hard to, to, to not believe someone, you know. Yeah, like, Especially yeah, if you've yeah. had unexplained experiences. You know? Yeah, I, I, I myself have kind of come to the idea that the universe is probably full of life, you know, and I just heard in our own galaxy there might be 60 billion planets that are Goldilocks, or 60 billion planets, and even only if a small percentage, like 1%, had uh, life that was more intelligent, you know, more advanced than ours, it's still like 500,000 planets, it's like 600,000 planets with, I think I did the math correctly, that would have, you know, that have more technology than us, and what does that mean? I don't know, they say future technology will look like magic, you know? know. Probably they have the ability, I mean, to reach us. But that's just, you know, one of the statistics that are are out there now that probably life is throughout the universe, you know? Yeah, it's it's such a a time to be alive, Dennis. (laughs) (laughs) Things are happening quickly. Uh, You saw where they think there's some life on Mars, you know, very... You know, this uh, gas that's there. Uh, oh, the name uh, of it. Venus? Are you talking about the, the Venus? Uh, Venus, yeah. Today that came out. Yeah. You know, it's, it's preliminary. It's kind of preliminary, but maybe it's a sign that there's some sort of primitive, you know, some sort of primitive life there or something on Mars, at least in the atmosphere, you know. Yeah, they said it's yeah. one of their, uh, like, main indicators of life, usually, is the, uh, yeah. I think it's phos- yeah. phosphorine or something like that. It's, yeah, it smells like a skunk or something, but uh, the gas does, but. That was today's news, and then one of my friends, you know, uh, from Texas sent me a clip on that, and I had already saw it popped up on my phone like three times, and I went, what is this? And I said, oh, Venus might have life on it, at least in the atmosphere, you know. I'm like, oh, that's, it's always something every day, you know, and, and again, they keep finding ancient sites around the world, and they keep finding that a lot of them are quite sophisticated. Uh, our site, if you draw points between uh, the walls, and when I have the, I have all the diagrams, my dad made up some, and other people did it. We did uh, some just recently in the last 10 years, uh, just before he died, and others were made in the 1970s. There's a geometry to our site, too, uh, equilateral, isosceles, and Pythagorean triangle. And this is found at some of the stone circles over in Scotland, for instance, too, some of the 800 stone circles that are over there. So there seems to be a mathematics and astronomy, engineering, and probably a standard unit of measure. And then again, like you say, there might be these lines, you refer to them as ley lines, you know, connecting these sites together. Uh, but in any event, these people seem to be pretty, pretty brilliant, you know. 
understanding mathematics way before Pythagoras, you know? Absolutely. Um, Astronomy, all of it. Absolutely. It's a, yeah. You know, and, and the, we don't give them as much credit as they should get, you know? Yeah. It's, yeah. That's, you hit the nail on the head on that. They keep thinking everybody's so simple that they're not capable, you know? Uh, it's very much looking down at these cultures, you know? When you really look at the evidence they have, it's like, they're always surprised, you know? Like, all oh, these people could do that, you know? You sail around the world, uh, build these magnificent structures like Stonehenge or the pyramids or any other thousands and thousands of sites that are, they're actually engineered, you know, and laid out very, very carefully, uh, you know, and using mathematics. Uh, Dr. Tom in Scotland, we met him, and he's the father of Oculus Astronomy, and we talked to him since the 1960s. We, we had supper with him in Scotland with his whole family in 1982, and he passed away in 1983. And he was at the University of Glasgow, and he had a seat at Oxford University, and he helped develop the engineering department there. And I believe before he retired, he was actually they were constructing a brand new engineering building, and I think it's it's probably much bigger than it, it was back then. But his name's still over there, um, and he's the one that found the megalithic yard, which is 32.64 inches, and that's the standard unit of measure we're kind of looking at. And the uh, the way the, the stone circles and other structures were aligned with the the eighteen and a half year lunar cycle, and um, and uh, and the mathematics of these of these structures over there, they had egg shape and pear shape, and a couple of the stone circles were actually flat sided. It looks like they understood pi because you can take the diameter and actually lay it on the flat sided circle, and the and it will touch after you know three diameters will come around and watch you touch, you know, and uh, so they had that concept, I think, of pi. And even uh, phi, which is at what, 1.618, the uh, golden ratio, they seem to be aware of that at some of these sites, too. Yeah. So yeah, they, I, weren't, they weren't simple at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what we used to think they were, you know, just a bunch of, you know, simpletons putting up. In fact, they said a lot of the stone circles, uh, some of them are perfectly circular in Wales and in, up in, in Scotland. And some, again, were kind of, you know, elliptical shape, you know. And when you found out it's used one foci, you have a perfect circle. Two foci, you end up with an ellipse. And three foci, you can you can actually make, like, pear shapes, you know. Different, he calls them an egg shapes, you know, and he classifies them. And even that flat-sided uh, circle. And uh, so they were aware of the concept of uh, the three, four, five triangle, you know, for instance, or different, you know, influence of that. Or the, uh, the, da- uh, the uh, isosceles or equilateral triangles, and he can demonstrate that, not just a few times, but over those, you know, about 800 stone circles, he seems to be repeating themselves. So, it's not a coincidence, you know. Oh, yeah, they absolutely knew what they were doing. There's no question they knew what they were doing. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. Very, very interesting, yeah. Well, Dennis, we're about two hours now, man. I appreciate your time. <laughs> wow. Um, it, it went by quick. I had so much yeah. fun, man. <laughs> Uh, I yeah, I appreciate you so much. Oh, uh, thank you. So you I, guys are great. Yeah, you guys are great. Yeah. yeah, I appreciate you guys coming out. Uh, a couple times you came out. I hope you guys come back again. Oh, we're, and, we're uh, definitely going to. Uh, yeah. I'm going to encourage all of my listeners to um, get out and check out America's Stonehenge. It is located in Salem, New Hampshire. Uh, Dennis, what's your website again? Yeah. Uh, Edwin, it's uh, StonehengeUSA.com. There's an email in there. There's a phone number uh, if they want to give us a call. And uh, the free app download is on that. And the 12-minute video in our uh, 
in a theater, which is the theater's closed right now. They can watch an introductory film. And then we're on Facebook and also Instagram. So there's a number of ways to, you know, check out the site and also to contact us, you know. Okay. Do you also have a YouTube page? Yeah, we do. You go on America Stonehenge and there's quite a few videos. Uh, we've done our own and I think there's some produced by other people too. So, um, and, and I did go on there for a radio show one night. We were having some technical difficulties and when I went in there, there are a few that we did that are not in there for some reason either. And we're going to find out why. But yeah, in America Stonehenge, you go on YouTube to see some of the videos and I think the, uh, the one with the Watch House Illumination, I think, you know, the latest one that will be on there, too, which is pretty cool. And it's amazing. Everybody should yeah. definitely check it out. It's so cool. I see it in person. Get out there, you know. <laughs> um, Dennis, thank you so much. I appreciate your time and um, your invite last Friday, and I hope you get to enjoy your, uh, did you say it was your granddaughter? Yes, yeah, brand new granddaughter. Her name is uh, Juliet. Yeah, and I've only seen her once, so... Uh, I'm going to be over there tomorrow checking her out again. So, But thank you so much. I totally enjoyed having you, you both, all of you visit us uh, twice in the last uh, month and a half, I think it was. And um, uh, I totally enjoyed talking to you tonight. So thank you so much, and your listeners, too. Absolutely. We'll try to do it again soon. Thank you so much. Have a good night, now. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye-bye.